Hey everyone, Kyle here. Welcome back to the Climbing Majority Podcast, where Max and I sit down with living legends, professional athletes, certified guides, and recreational climbers alike to discuss the topics, lessons, stories, and experiences found in the life of a climber. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, Kyle here. We've got some exciting news this week. We will be hosting a live Q&A with our previous guest, AMGA guide Max Lurie, also known as Alpine to the Max. In this exclusive session, we will be giving you the opportunity to ask us and Max questions and pick topics for us to discuss. This event is going to take place on Max Lurie's Instagram, Alpine to the Max, on November 2nd at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Spread the word, and we are excited to see you there. All right, people, today is a special day because we are sitting down with one of the most legendary high alpine climbers of the 19th century. His name is Alan Burgess. Alan first reached out to me after seeing a climbing majority poster at our local climbing gym here in Reno. We met at a coffee shop and I did not know what to expect, having not known who he was or about his stories up to this point. He handed a book to me. It was called The Burgess Book of Lies, and his vision was to turn it into an audiobook. To be honest, at this point, I had no idea who Alan was. And now, after hearing his stories, I'm a bit ashamed as a climber to have not known who he was. But after sitting down with him for probably an hour, I knew that he was special and his life needed to be shared. So I agreed. Unfortunately, after much effort, the project of turning his book into an audiobook just did not make any sense and we had to call it quits. So instead, we are sitting here today to do the second best thing, to get him onto the podcast to hear his story. Alan lived a life that most of us couldn't even dream of. His vast experience in the mountains and the multitude of ascents around the world that he has accomplished in his life would just be simply impossible to capture in a podcast episode. So we decided to break up his story into two parts. In this episode, we are going to talk about his childhood and what climbing was like in the 1950s, and then we're going to talk about his most notable super alpine ascents. The first climb we're going to be talking about is his third ascent of the American route on Fitzroy in Patagonia. Next is the first alpine-style ascent of the French route on the north face of Josque Norte in Peru. And third, we're going to be talking about the first ascent of the southwest buttress of Mount Logan in Canada a route that has never been repeated. And finally, we're going to close this episode out by talking about how he was able to fund and create a life of climbing around the world and how he was able to survive through countless situations where most fail. So please sit back and relax and enjoy this two and a half hour episode with Alan Burgess. Okay, ready, gentlemen? Ready to go. Oh! <laughs> All right. Well, cheers, mate. Cheers, cheers. guys. All right. Ah. So, welcome. Welcome, uh, Al, Max. Hi, Max. How's it going, Al? You're in Vancouver, right? I sure am, man. Yeah, no, it's an absolute yeah. pleasure to be here talking with you and, uh, you know, lots of fun, exciting things to have a conversation with. Well, a fellow Canadian. Oh, are you a Canadian? 
Yeah, I have a Canadian Wow, passport. I didn't know that. Awesome, man. Not actually outdated, but well, I keep it just in case I need to run somewhere. <laughs> That's your backup plan. Yeah. Well, I look forward to slowly hearing how you ended up in Reno. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, hell, we'll just get started here. Um, yeah, everybody, you know, this is Al Burgess. Uh, I met him uh recently uh he actually reached out to me because he saw a climbing majority poster up in uh mesa rim and uh he and his the climbing gym the climbing gym yep him and his twin brother adrian uh wrote a book about their lives and their climbing um legends and stories that they've done over the years and uh we basically wanted to try to create an audio book uh from the book and you know here we are now we're unfortunately not able to move forward with that project but I thought it'd be an awesome opportunity to get him on the show and and to have him tell his story um, and at least get something uh, in the in the internet world so that people can can remember and and hear these amazing stories. So, you know, that's kind of that's why we're here today. Um, Al, if you just want to like introduce yourself, just kind of like your name, how old yeah. you are, and and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. So, um, I'm actually next month. I'm seventy four. Okay. Uh, I was born in Yorkshire, in Northern England. Um, interesting story. Back in 1948, it was, you know, just after the end of the Second World War, really. Things were food as rationed. And my brother and myself, twin, identical twins, we were born six weeks prematurely. Hmm. In 1948, that was really dangerous. Oh, wow. And there were two other sets of twins in the hospital at the same time as we were born, you know. They both died. Wow. All four of them. And we were kept in an oxygen tent, which is basically a sheet thrown over a frame with our oxygen leaking out. And we weren't allowed to go home for about five days, you know. And wow. we were only we were four pounds at birth. My dad said you could fit us in a 20-ounce pint pot. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so we're kind of lucky. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be a, uh, you know, I, I have read a, a significant portion of your book and we'll get into a lot of these stories a little bit later, but it definitely seems like um, luck has played a large role in the reason why you're here today. Still, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and yeah, it's interesting that yeah, that so climbing, played early, so, so yeah. early on. So climbing, climbing back then. So we started climbing at the age of 15, uh, 14, 15. Back then it was a fringe sport. And there was no such thing as sport climbing or gym climbing. It was all trad climbing. And often multi-pitch, some single pitch on grit stone. You know, we're brought up on the cracks of the Derbyshire grit stone. And some of the, the multi-pitch climbing in the Lake District and in Snowdonia, North Wales. Now, what happened was we... We found a couple of books in the library, and one was a how-to-do-it book, and one was a small guidebook for a gritstone crag. And that gritstone crag was called Lado Rocks, and it was a, we could get there on our bicycles from the small village of Holmfirth, where we were living. And, you know, so we, we were going out there climbing with um, a sizable rope and no gear, you know, and hiking boots. And my dad caught us. I think talking about it, 
and decided that, you know, we'd better probably get a little bit better instruction. And in those days, what you did, you joined a climbing club. And, you know, every university would have had a, a mountaineering club mm. or a climbing club. But there were other, other clubs around. And my dad took us down to this one in Huddersfield, about six miles away from Homeforth, and it was called the Phoenix, the Phoenix Mountaineering Club. And there they met in a pub every Friday night and you, were, you sat there and you arranged to, um, to get rides for the weekend. And most of them, a lot of the lads would work on Saturday morning and stuff, you know, as engineers or they'd be doing, they'd be doing some other work, construction work, whatever they were doing. And then they would probably leave on Saturday afternoon and climb Sunday and drive back Sunday night. That was standard. And usually when we were only 15, we would sit there and there were these guys who were, the oldest one was probably 35, 40 at that time, but they would then take you out for a couple of weekends. You would climb with them on a multi-pitch and they kind of, you know, show you the ropes, what to do mm-hmm. and how, and really it was about instilling safety in you because, you know, we, we, we already knew how to climb and stuff, but, you know, we didn't know how to use running belays, you know, on trad routes. And in those days, a lot of the running belays were um, homemade. There were machine nuts that were drilled out or filed out so the, the threads were gone. And then they were threaded on thin pieces of rope. And there were four thicknesses of rope from, they call them number one, two, three, and four. Four thickness, number four was one and three eighths. I don't know if that, I doubt if that was diameter. I don't, I'm not sure what it was, but it was like an 11 millimeter rope nowadays. And then, and the thinnest one was probably the same as five millimeter per one. So you had, that was the range you had. And a lot of the runners you had would be placed rock spikes, a sling over a rock spike, you know, and a quite long one so it didn't lift off. And so, and all the beaners, uh, then was steel. There were no aluminum beaners. So they were heavier? Oh, wait, twice as heavy. Mm-hmm. Twice as heavy. You know, if you were doing an aid climb, um, which, you know, we did, and there were some around, you might be carrying 40 of those things. Wow. I mean, they weighed a lot, you know. And so that's how we started climbing with that club. And then after about maybe a, a year and a half or so, we we're probably close to 16. There was this one of the better climbers in the club called John Stanger. He was probably six years older than us, six, maybe eight. Um, He was looking for people to climb with on a Saturday as well. He was a telephone engineer. And so we ended up climbing a lot with him as a threesome. And he was a much better climber than us. You know, he was climbing in those days. He probably would have been around 10C, 10 plus trad. Mm -hmm. Was a very good climber, super, super flexible. They could do the split sideways, stemming, and things like this. Wow. And you know, but we were gradually getting stronger as well. And by the age of sixteen, I remember leading this thing called Vector, which I don't know how you would grade it nowadays. But uh, I went back. Well, it's probably ten years ago now, and um, it was pretty slippery. And I failed at it. <laughs> and I had modern shoes wow. and modern gear. 
And, you know, it was really slippery. And I think I'd, I was going the slightly the wrong way. But, um, you know, it was it might have been 10C. It could it could be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was grade, it was graded extremely severe, but there was no other grades, you know, then. Yeah. And the hardest climbs around were hard. There was there's one called the skull, which was considered probably nowadays to be eleven plus twelve A tram. Wow. And run out, you know. And that was put way done way back. Um so you know, we ended up climbing with John Stanger, and the first year we went to the Alps, we were just 17. Um, just coming up to 18 in September. But, you know, it was June, July, August, and we all drove out to Europe and we went to the Wilderkaiser in Austria, limestone, multi-pitch, alpine rock. So real, real quick, I want to back up a little yeah. bit. So you started climbing when you said you were 14, right? About 15, 15? almost 15. Okay, so did you have any athletic background up to the point where you started climbing? Did you do any other sports? Uh yeah, I did track and field and cross country. Okay, cross, that was probably endurance stuff like that. In fact, we you know went to a grammar school and they would have. You know, it was a very classical one. You know, you had to wear the same coloured blazers and hats and all this kind of stuff. And um, they had what they called the Victor Ludorum, junior, middle, and senior. Basically, it was a decathlon. Okay. And you, but you could pick 10, 10 events. Okay. And I would win that nice. in all three times, you know. And then so when you... I didn't train, though. No? And, no, I didn't really train. It was just, just you know, just, I don't know, naturally built. Naturally built, yeah. yeah. And so when you found climbing, you were 15, 16. Yeah. And you said you, you found about, about the sport through books. Yeah. And then you and Adrian, your twin brother, just like, found supplies on your own and started tackling the local crags by yourselves without yeah, any instruction. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty, I mean, we we're only climbing relatively easy stuff back then. It would have been, mm-hmm. you know, there'd have been some five, 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 six, okay. but they're in hiking boats. You yeah. Know? And you certainly did back then you didn't fall. Yeah. You climb back down. Yeah. Oh. You know, you didn't really want to take a fall. Yeah. And so this kind of brings me to a question, you know, you kind of covered it a little bit and I'm sure it, you know, the gear kind of progressed a little bit, but before we jump into some of these bigger stories of your achievements when you were a climber, um, what was the gear like? Like what, what were you protecting your climbs with? Um, let's start with rock climbs and we'll move on to ice climbs later. Um, yeah. Like, what was that like? You know, you said, you know, you basically climbed in that sport to just not fall. You right. know, was there protection? What were you using to get down? Were you repelling at all? Like talk to us a little bit about, about the gear. Yeah, well, then. the gear, metal beaners, um, and four thickness of, of slings. And so you had really small engineering nuts drilled out or filed out on thin slings all the way back up to what would be considered now, what would it be? It would probably be like an eight or nine hex. Mm-hmm. That was probably the largest we had. It was a huge nut. Was it solid or hollow? It was hollow, hollow, hollow. with the threaded slings on it. Okay. So these these were like primitive hexes, mm-hmm. which you had. Mm-hmm. Um, that and slings. Also chalk stones, you would use those. You found quite a few of those, actually, where people had dropped rocks in the back either because they, you know, they wanted to make a chalk stone. Okay. But then you would thread slings around it mm-hmm. and, and clip it in, and that would be... An old school big old, boy. Old school, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Wow. I'm I'm wondering here, uh, Al. So due to the nature of the gear, it sounds like obviously if you're climbing through a crux or something, would it like correct me if I'm wrong, but would it be almost too strenuous to place proper protection? So you'd have it almost like an obligatory run out. Was that something that you would experience? Well, you would. Yes, you couldn't get. I mean, you you couldn't get gear just in anywhere. Uh, in those days, you couldn't. You know, I mean, it wasn't like you saw a crack. And, you know, if there was a crack and it was at least three inches deep, you could put a cam in it nowadays. Mm-hmm. No, there was none of that. You, sometimes you had to fiddle because you had to fiddle it into a constriction. Mm-hmm. And that took sometimes quite a lot of strength and energy to to hang around. So, you know, you'd probably get something as close to the crooks as you can, and then you would climb up. It would Because a lot of it was searching for holds. This was no chalk. It wasn't, oh, there's the chalk hole. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes they were out of sight or hidden. And so if you couldn't do it the first time, then you would maybe climb back down and shake out and rest. And then gradually you'd work yourself up maybe another five feet higher, and then you might come back for another rest. And then sometimes you might say, shit, I can't get back now. And you just go for it, you know, and you'd go for it and – find a hold and pull through it, you know. And, and so the, rock, the rock shoes, you know, we did initially, you had plimsolls. They were the black sold, um, you know, plimsolls were first named after the plimsoll line on a ship. And I guess sailors wore them and they were black rubber, you know, with thin cotton tennis shoes, like tennis shoes with smooth black rubber on the bottom. And you would wear those incredibly tight. And they did have better friction than the big hiking boots. Mm-hmm. And you would carry those with you, um, you know, and possibly use those. But there were, there were climbing shoes around. And I think John Stanger actually said, I think, lad, it's about time for you lads to get some proper shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah. um, there were... They were called PAs, which later became known as EBs. And they were the high-top, smooth-soled, but not sticky rubber, kind of like um, a heavy-duty TC Pro. Mm. You know, that's the closest shoe I can think of now. You know, it was a thick sole on it, and, you know, you could edge with it, but it wasn't sticky, and it was super high ankle. And you wore socks with it, Mm -hmm. you know. And what, what age were you when those shoes came out, the EBs? Well, we by the time we got a pair, we were probably six, 16 to 17. Okay, so almost perfect yeah. timing for you guys. Oh, no, they came out before that. Oh, they did. But okay. we just didn't get a pair. Gotcha. We, you know, it's kind of pricey for us and stuff. You know? You're training for the Alpine boots anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> and we were climbing in these big old chunky hiking boots. Yeah. You know? yeah. And that's what you kind of did. You know, there was a certain amount of training for the Alps. Because that's what everybody wanted to do. First, well, first of all, let's go back a bit. Then you wanted to get, you need, that was the rock climbing multi-pitch. But you needed some ice climbing experience. Mm-hmm. And that was only found really in Scotland. Mm-hmm. A little bit in the Lake District of Wales, but mainly you would go for a week up to Ben Nevis and Glencoe. Mm-hmm. And that then you'd have crampons, big heavy boots. And initially, you would have um, a short ice axe. My first one was an ex-army thing that I cut down to about 18 inches. Because what you needed here, you were cutting hand and foot holds. Mm. 
you were cutting them, and your gloves were Dachstein, um, Dachstein woolen mitts. When you reached up, they would kind of semi-freeze into the jug that you'd bloody carved out. So, so the one thing, the big mistake was you didn't, you always had to carve a head. Uh-huh. You didn't carve a hold and then move and step up into it, unless it was easy angle. Uh-huh. You know, if it was 50 degrees, you might, 55 degrees. But, you know, a lot of it was 80 degrees. You know, you were hanging on and chipping. So you had to cut holds and then you would move up two steps and then cut holds, you know. And that that went on right into the Alps when we first started going there. Wow. I mean, I remember there was um, this route called the Shroud on the north face of the Grand Jurassic that these Czech, Czech climbers in 1968 did. And the one guy cut his way up it. And we're all joking, like he must have one arm <laughs> that was the size of a person's leg, yeah. you know, to cut 3,000 foot of wow. steps, you know. When did front pointing and more? Like- well, it was there, but it what you know, I think really in the late 30s, the Austrians and the Germans were front pointing. Okay. And they were then using probably ice daggers, mm-hmm. a ice hammer in one hand and a dagger in the other, wow. like a sharpened ice piton or something. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't any drop tools then. Some people may have made their own, mm. but they weren't certainly weren't commercially available. Mm. The French, on the other hand, so that was the Germans and Austrians front pointing. Um, the the French sidestepped, and they would do this. I think Yvonne Chenard did this ice climbing book on it, where you would have uh, both hands on one ice axe, one hand on the head, one hand on the shaft, and you would plant your what do they call it? Or plat or something, flat feet, and you would put all crampons in. But you couldn't do that on 90 degree ice. Mm-hmm. There's no way you could. You could do it probably up to 60 degrees if you were really good. But that would be, normally it would be more 50 to 55. Mm-hmm. And if you read The White Spider, the first ascent of the North Face, well, there's all kinds of ascents of the North Face of the Eiger. But when it was first climbed in 38, um, there were two teams on it. One team was wearing nailed boots and had to cut steps. That was Fritz Kasparak and his friend. And then there was, um, was it Fra- Kasparak and Hara? Anyway, there was um, the Ger- the other guys. What was his name? Oh, anyway, he was from Pointing. And it made a big point of it. He had an ice daggers, maybe a slightly curved tools, and he was front pointing. And that was the whole, and that was probably just starting then. Mm. It wouldn't have been the first time he ever did front pointing, but that was then. When we first got to the Alps front pointing, our crampons weren't good enough, actually. Mm. They weren't. They were still by things. They were, you know, they, was, they, were, okay, they were okay on Neve like white nevy ice, but not on blue hard ice. Mm-hmm. No way. And, you know, the first big ice climb we did was the North Face of the Triolet, and it took us 18 hours, and we cut steps the whole way up it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'd, nowadays, with modern tools, you know, it's 2,500 feet, I'd climb it in two and a half hours, you know, 1,000 foot an hour. So, uh, Max, do you have any questions before I go to the next one? No, 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 it's all good. Yeah, um, I'm just curious. So 
the the process from going to you know backyard climbing you have a mentor you're in this climbing group and you go to the alps when you're 17 17 so you've yeah. been climbing just under a year or about no, a, year? a couple of years two years yeah like two years. still that seems really quick how many let's say like were you climbing every weekend for two years like how much experience um, did you get under your belt before taking on these well, more we involved been, objectives? Well, we certainly been trying to climb every weekend. Okay. But knowing the weather yeah. <laughs> in Britain, I mean, you would climb in bad weather. Yeah. I mean, you would climb in the rain on gritstone and freeze your hands because it was good training for the Alps. <laughs> yeah. And in Scotland, always you're climbing in, you know, snowing and blow, windy and cold. It was rarely blue skies wow. occasionally. But, you know, I mean, yeah. And and uh, so if you can't protect yourself well and you can't really fall, how are you progressing your abilities and managing that risk level at the same time? Well, you can fall if you pick your places, but you can't just fall. You really don't want to be falling. So how do you how do you push your difficulty level, your technical level without that risk of, of injuring yourself if you mess up or a piece of gear pulls? Well, you, you're, you're, Are you're you setting up top ropes? Um, not really. We didn't. It, top roping wasn't done much. It was kind of looked down on. Okay. Like if you were top roping at a gritstone crag, some, you know, as young lads of 17, some older guys wandering along the top would be, what are you doing? Get that down. <laughs> you know, that, that's practicing a route. Yeah. Because... You know, some of the routes we're doing, you know, they were probably five. I mean, those gritstone routes were mainly five nine. There might have been the odd five ten there, mm-hmm. right? You know, and, and some of it was knowing how to do it, where the holds were. So if you'd done it on a top rope, you could, and then you led it. There was no, they didn't call it a red point. It was called cheating. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, there might have been some stuff that we were playing around on on some quarries and stuff mm-hmm. where there were no climbs, <clears throat> where you would, or there's no protection, where you might top rope. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, you were trying to do it ground up mm-hmm. and you got stronger and your technique got better and your endurance got better and you could hang in in those places where it was really difficult to rest. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just... Stem, stemming around something and shaking one hand and, you know, get, getting rid of a pump and then going back up to it. And, you know, and and sometimes maybe you would take. Mm. But, you know, taking was sometimes dodgy mm. because, you know, you didn't know if the nut was going to pull, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, sometimes you knew it was good or something. Or if there was a piton in, you know, you could probably, although some of those pitons looked, Pretty old, some of them. I mean, they, you could have probably torn them out. You wow. Know, soft steel rotted ones from the 1930s or something. Yeah. You know. Yeah, were you using pitons pretty early on too? Um, you would, no, you, you would use it on aid routes. Okay. Yeah, you would use pitons and aid routes. Mm-hmm. But on, if you were doing, well, we weren't doing first ascents, mm-hmm. right? But if somebody was doing like Joe Brown was doing the first ascent, he might limit himself to two pitons on a pitch, mm. on a hard climb. Why the? Why and the something way? that was pretty close to five eleven, I would imagine. Jeez. 
Yeah. And what, so he's got just two pieces so, of protection for the entire No, no, bench? no, he would use knots okay. and slings and spikes and whatever he could use. But, you know, occasionally if it was totally blank, mm-hmm. he might put in a pin. And if he placed a pin, chances are it was used for aid. Okay. Just like maybe he put, on, a sling, put a sling on it, stand in it. There was, there was no real difference if it said a point of aid between pulling on it or standing in it. Okay. Right? There's no, you know, so if you saw a piton and it said, in the guidebook it said, um, one piton for aid, mm-hmm. you would clip a sling on it, pull up, get your foot on it, get your foot up behind you to rest in it, and then, you know, stand up and see where you go mm-hmm. and from there. And, you know, you know, if you've ever done that and left a point of aid, it's a point of no return. <laughs> Because you can't get your foot back. Once you've pulled out of it, often you can't get your foot back into it. Mm. You've kind of left it. Mm-hmm. You've got to go, you know. Yeah. And usually that would be at a crooked point, you know, and that was to get you through. It wouldn't necessarily be the crooked, but it would get you through that point. Are you clipping your rope to it as you pass to? Or is oh, it- you slip your rope into it. Yeah, you would yeah. have a lot. You put a long sling on it mm-hmm. and you'd clip the rope on the bottom of the sling probably. And then you'd stand in it? And then you'd stand in it. Okay. You probably wouldn't clip directly into the pin because it's a great drag mm-hmm. you want to yeah extend it extend it yeah. i'm just wondering here al so at the time when you were climbing and there was kind of these to me you could say obviously in hindsight it seems really easy for me to say but like arbitrary rules did they seem just common common knowledge or common practice or was it something at the time that you questioned and maybe you thought oh this seems a little silly that i can't top rope a climb or et cetera? What, what was your feeling at the time? And maybe what's your feeling now? Well, you, you, you probably, pro, you know, when we were 17, you didn't question it because guys at 25 and 35 were telling us, don't do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, I mean, they'd, you know, you'd get um, probably shouted at if you were doing that. Mm-hmm. Ethics. You know, I mean, if you, if you were pulling on something, you know, somebody might shout up or you get that, like that, go, stop that, you know. And if you're, you know, if you're standing in gear on a route that you weren't supposed to, that looks like it's too hard for you. Come on down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're merciless. You know? Yeah. But don't forget, there weren't the same numbers of people climbing either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah, you live by the ethics. Now, when you went to the Alps, those ethics didn't count. Mm-hmm. Anything went. Because it was all about speed and safe. Speed was safety. So you know. So when you call, when you nowadays, if you call something French free, right, that means you're pulling on it with your hands. You don't mm-hmm. stand in it. It's French free. Just mm-hmm. because the French used to do that all the time okay. and call it a free climb, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and don't forget the belay techniques were round the waist belay, so with a with a twist round your wrist. And so you would wear leather gloves. And we actually had um, a jacket, big leather jacket, not leather jackets, but canvas jackets with leather stitched around the back. Wow. So you wouldn't wear, you couldn't wear the jacket down. And uh, for a while, my brother, he was, we were training, John Stang and I were training him to be the bee layer because it took some skill. Uh-huh. And I remember this one time I went to the top of this gritstone quarry and we had two big coal sacks, hessian bags. We filled with rocks at the top and bound it around, right? And Adrian was tied to a big boulder with his gloves on and his 
big thick jacket, you know. And we edged it to the head, gave him six foot of slack, and then tossed it over. And he went <laughs> and held it. Wow. And let it slide a little, you know, uh-huh. so you're not – well, yeah, he had to. Probably had to let it yeah. slide a bit. But they, they said let it slide a bit because uh-huh. that would help the strength of the anchors and everything. Mm-hmm. And then we did that. And on the third time, I remember, because we pulled about 20 foot of slack, and I went round to the bottom of the quarry to watch. And this sack came hurling over the top. <laughs> I went, holy shit, it's halfway down the cliff, right? <laughs> And it pulled Adrian over onto his side because he had the rope outside his big toe, oh. outside his foot. It pulled him onto his side. Wow. But he held it. Wow. So a good belay was worth a lot. Wow. It wouldn't get dropped, you know. At what point did, the, did you start wearing more modern-day harnesses? Um, wow, that wouldn't have been until probably around 1970. So all these I think, like I think trips the first, and stuff that I've read about you being in the Alps was all hit belays. Uh, oh yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. Well, even when there was um, harnesses, you're still belayed with hit. I mean, I think the first harness, like the Willens harness, was made in. I think it was for the South Face of Annapurna, which was in 1970. So before that, you would have, you know, you swami belts. That's what they were using in Yosemite, okay. right? Rather than harness. Um, and then for, for repelling, you would just put a sling round your thighs. You know, you'd figure of eight sling and clip that to your swami mm. and then repel over the shoulder <clears throat> or carabiner brake, carabiner brake system. <clears throat> um, you know, we didn't know about, the French used to be using a munter hitch. Mm-hmm. And we used to see them doing that because they would have it direct to the anchor. Mm-hmm. And we just think, that's a bloody dodgy way of being, <laughs> you know, just a munter yeah. on the direct there. Uh-huh. Actually, it would have worked. It's pretty good, yeah. It would have been pretty good. It would have been really good had they munted it with a twist around the waist as well. Mm-hmm. That would have been probably really excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't know that, though. I think a so, lot of modern uh, belaying and, and guiding outfits now, Al, is they're actually starting to move back to having a multi-directional anchor point with a redundant master point and using a, a, a munter hitch on just a single locking carabiner. So they're actually kind of coming full circle back to that. I think there's a lot of really strong you're doing benefits. That, you're doing that on a leader climbing? Yep. Wow. Yeah. So I think the rope has a lot of slippage. So you're supposed to wear a belay glove because um, the rope will slip. But essentially, because yeah. it's all dynamic properties, it reduces load on the anchor. Um, it's actually quite easy. I was working on this the other, like two weeks ago. Um, it's really efficient, quite easy. And then if the leader was actually get injured as well, you don't have to transfer the load onto the anchor. It's already onto the anchor. So you can kind of just do a, a munter mule and, and lock off the anchor and you're ready to go to start looking wow. into how you can do rescue. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want that directly, you know, I mean, I can imagine on bolts and it pulls up, but yeah, so it's bolts, or then if it's a trad anchor, you need to have a. You need to obviously have whatever you adhere to for a strong enough anchor. Generally, three pieces, and then you need to have one piece as a as a directional for upward pull that can withstand at least four to five kilonewtons. That's my understanding of it, um, huh. because that's what would they've you, done in a lot of would tests. You ever use, would you use a munter on a big beaner on your beeline loop? 
you could do that as well too, I guess. Um, but then there's still the property is like, you're gonna, you're some of the benefits of having it on the anchor is that if your leader falls, you're not going to get pulled into any terrain as well. Cause it's right, right on the anchor. Yeah. So you could oh, use it. I mean, seen, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I've seen that with bolted anchors and stuff. Totally. You know, bolted is different, you know, with yeah. poles. It also solves the problem of a heavy leader and a light belayer because all the force yes. is put on the anchor and sure. instead of a light belayer, yeah, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah. No, I mean, I could see that. I would also assume from the time of the uh, French and the Alps that you're describing that a, the technology of the ropes and the actual dynamic properties have probably increased a lot. The camming material you can use to make multi-directional anchors, obviously, you know, like the improvements in these things are probably like more than tenfold. So I think it's probably a lot different now doing it than at the time you're describing. <laughs> well, they would have had it on up through pins yeah. in the Alps. You know, that would have been the way they did it. But, but harnesses came before Belay. Um, I'm trying to think what the first belay device was. Device was. I, I, it was either a stitch plate with one or two holes in it, and it had a spring on so it wouldn't lock up. Also, you could have a figure of eight just for repelling, and you could belay, um, you could use that as a stitch plate, mm. you know, or, or even just pay it out. Mm. But we were, st- we were still using hit belays probably at times because certainly in the Alps because it was faster. Mm. You could pay the rope out faster and stuff. And, and certainly bringing the second up, you would either um, have a munter on the anchor directly or um, a waist belay around the waist. Just like sitting? Sitting, sitting yeah. Because you could, you know, you could... The, the advantage, and this is for guiding particularly, if you were using it round the waist, I can bend my legs, take in the rope and straighten my legs, and I can haul somebody up mm. using my legs, mm-hmm. which you can't do that using a belay thing real, not as easily anyway. Uh, so <clears throat> we have some stories to dive into today. Um, some of your, your biggest objectives, and I think we've done a good job at lining the groundwork for what the world was like as a climber back in that day and, and kind of what tools and techniques you were using for these ascents, uh, which I think is so important. Um, so the first story I want to dive into is your ascent of Fitzroy. Okay. Well, first of all, we were invited to go down to Fitzroy by Alan Rouse and a bunch of his friends, Rob Carrington, Brian Hall, John Whittle. Um, and it was in the fall of 74, over the winter of 74, 75. And at that time, actually, I was working illegally in Canmore, Alberta, in construction. And um, we flew from, we caught the bus from there to Miami and then flew down to Argentina. Um, At that time, Fitzroy had been, it had been climbed a number of times. The first time by Lionel Terry, not to put the French route up. It was done by, I think I know the Argentinian route. There was a British route. It was probably climbed less than 10 times. I, I couldn't swear exactly to the numbers, but it had been climbed also by Yvonne Chenard, by what is known as the Californian route, when he drove his Volkswagen bus down 
all the way from California, you know, and they put it on a boat someplace and, and they went surfing and they, all, they ended up doing this climb. Well, the thing with Fitzroy, it's about 11,000, 12,000 feet and it sits at its on, peak? Yeah, on the summit. Okay. Yeah, but the, the base of the Pampas is only about 1,500 feet, 2,000 feet. So it's a big, it's a big height gain. Um, not all on that rock, because, you know, there's glacier at the bottom of it, and it, it is, you know, I, th I think I've got those heights correct. Because it's not high altitude. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing about it, it's, it's like this big granite spike. Well, they call it Chilton because of the cloud coming out the top created by the wind makes it look like a volcano. Chilton means volcano, I believe, right? And so, you know, it was called Fitzroy from some British officer who, or admiral or whatever that was, that was sailing past it and named it, they named it after him. But because it sat in the middle, by itself in the middle of the Pampa, it's renowned for high winds, incredibly high winds. And of course, Cerratore, its neighbor, its kind of brother sat there right next to it, um, is, you know, famous for its atmospheric ice smeared all over it. So the winds are incredibly powerful there and the storms come up quickly and deadly. So that's the, that was the challenge. Um, Al Rouse and Rab Tarrington were down there trying to do new routes on the smaller peaks. And, and they did, I forgot what, they did Stanhart or something like that. Adrian and I wanted to go for Fitzroy because it's the obvious one. Mm -hmm. And it is easier than Cerratore. Cerratore had only been climbed a few times by then, you know, and it was definitely a, a big expedition siege, siege things that was climbing Cerratore. Mm -hmm. We wanted to climb Fitzroy Alpine style. So we would... We went there, we had our two girlfriends, Ada and myself, and we started climbing, I think, around in December. We never we never summited it until the 28th, uh, I think it was the 28th of February. We had so many tries. And um, I think we had three big tries where we almost got to the summit and got nailed by weather. And we were trying it initially from a snow cave and a tent at the base of the Italian couloir, top, top of the glacier, above base camp, you'd already gained a few thousand feet, good few thousand. And then there was this, I think it's about 1,500 foot couloir called the Italian couloir, which is snow and ice. And it was relatively, it had a steep Bergstrand at the bottom, but otherwise it was fairly straightforward. And we were trying to do it from there and it was just too far. You know, we... I mean, nowadays you would do it from there because you would use good head torches. Uh, but people also, we, eventually when we climbed it, we built a, an ice cave um, right at the foot of the rock itself. And we had some fixed line, old fixed line going down this couloir. And the, I don't think the whole thing was fixed, but certainly Bertrand was. And there were bits of old stuff we found as well. And then... We did it from there, and we met up with a South African guy. So he came, joined up with us, and um, you know, eventually we climbed it. But we did, you know, to be fair, we did have hexes then. Just by '74, I got my first set of hexes. No cams, but we did have hexes, and we had 
curved ice tools and front point crampons. No, you know, we have that. Um, we also, we had Gore-Tex. No, we didn't have Gore-Tex. We didn't have Gore-Tex then, which, which makes, oh, we, we had fleece, homemade fleece and sweaters as well. For for the route, it's, so to give some perspective, at least for the time, you know, like there is a town called El Chaltan. Now. Now. So <laughs> yeah. like, what was that like? Um, El Chaltan was one house. It was called the Guardia Park. It was a the guard of the park, the uh, National Park headquarters. Wow. And so how did you there. have supplies there? I mean, you were there for two months. That's a lot of food. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of supplies. Like. What, well, was, what, initially, was, what were the logistics? Initially, we all hitchhiked in on the back of, back of a construction vehicle. And we took, you know, a load of flour, um, soups. And every two weeks, there would be a postman come through. And you could order food from him. Okay. You know, give him money and he'd buy you food and bring it in. But the, there was a Swiss expedition there that did the second descent of the um, American route, the Canadian route you know chenards and we did the third cent and they had all these blue plastic drums you know with swiss chocolate because it was a swiss expedition and salami and cheeses and everything and when we showed up they actually said one guy said um where's all your supplies and food and stuff and we looked around and we pointed to all the sheep grazing <laughs> and went it's still walking around up there. <laughs> there aren't sheep there anymore. Uh, they moved them out. But the estancias then were grazing all over the Fitzroy area. Yeah, I read in the book that you actually went and oh, we were, well, we got were a rust, couple. We were rustling all the time. Yeah. yeah you know, you'd, it, they were known as puma kills. They just assumed as we're killing, killing, the, killing sheep. the sheep. Yeah. Well, they do. Yeah, kill yeah, the sheep. Yeah. But, you know, there were a few more puma kills during the season, <laughs> during the season. So you actually you actually yeah. killed and ate some sheep while you were there? Oh, all the time. Wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, on the summit attempt, on the summit attempt just before it, I went out and got a sheep and cut all the little bits up in meat up and fried it. We had packets of soup and Adrian baked bread. And that's what we climbed it on. Wow. With spaghetti, soups, bread. And um, chunks of cheap sheep meat. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure to bring a, a sheep up my next multi pitch just for you, Al. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so I read in the in the book that you guys were basically living in a ice cave for days. Yeah. On the, the last... on the western side of the the massif. Uh, right. That was on the final the final attempt. attempt. Yeah, we were there for about. I don't know, 10 days or something. Just in a tiny ice cave? Yeah. So so yeah. in your stories, it seems to be, uh, this one was the longest it seemed, but what do you do with that time? Five days, you're in a, you're in a, a 10 by, yeah. 10 by six cave. You really couldn't, you could you, stand you up in one end of it just to cook. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you, what are you doing to pass the time? How are you I, keeping your mind focused on the objective? I can't remember if you've taken books to read up there. You know, you'd go out and check the weather and stuff like this because we had an altimeter. You know, you've no weather forecast, no phones or anything like that. Just the barometer. Just the barometer. And when the barometer went up one point an hour for four hours continuously, that meant good weather was moving in. 
And when we climbed it, we left the ice cave, I think at 11 o'clock in the morning, climbed all day, bivouacked, just sat on a ledge, bivouacked, climbed all next morning, summited by noon, probably, rappelling off, and we got, no, we were before noon, because by the time we got back down to the ice cave, it, the storm had come and it was on at like one o'clock or something, I think. Yeah, it seemed like you were saying we had 24 that the storm hours was of chasing you back down. The yes, mountain. yeah. Um, and, and so on the route itself, in terms of technical difficulty, like what was the... Well, it's the, granite. Are you climbing cr- cracks? Are you climbing rope? Like, are you lead climbing or is it all ice? Like, is it snow travel? It, it, start, it started off with about a few hundred feet of ice climbing up to this little col seizure which I think means armchair call or something. And from there, it, it's granite, um, cracks, face, flakes, um, reasonable ledges most of the way, belay stances, not big ledges. Mm-hmm. Um, this, near the top, there was some ice, you know, like uh, rime. rime ice, on the outside of the cracks and stuff. So what's, uh, this is something that's been interesting to me a lot. I, I was inspired by the Saratori climb years ago when I first became a climber. And I was just fascinated by the atmospheric rime ice that sticks to the, the rocks out there. What is that like to, to climb on? Um, like, is it, does it hold an ice axe? Are you able to step into it? Do you have to dig deep in to get to more substantial territory? Well, most on Fitzroy, there isn't a lot of, you know, climbing on rhyme ice. Okay. It's just there getting in the way of the rock. Gotcha. I mean, that's, it's some, it's mainly you would chip at it and try to get it out of the crack. But you can climb on it. I mean, on territory on the ice side, they actually tunnel through. Tunnel. But I, I haven't really climbed that rhyme ice there. But I would imagine it's like climbing in Scotland. That's what Scottish ice is, is rhyme ice. Mm-hmm. And you just front point on it. I've yeah. heard um, that I, I, this is not from personal experience, but I've heard that it can be the consistency. Some of the rime ice and some of the top outs in uh, in you know Patagonia can be the consistency of mashed potatoes or ice. And so I have seen people do a sense where there's almost an attachment that you can put on modern ice tools. And it's kind of like a head that fits on the top. That's like a, a pronged shovel on either side. And so you kind of like swing into it. And then yes. the consistency yeah. is really, really low. Like a mashed potato or soupy, you can kind of Gives pull you yourself through it. Area. So that's just, that's totally anecdotal. But uh... yeah, we, we, we never came across any ice like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one, there's the, the Crooks pitch on it, which I remember uh, started off on a thin groove with, I think, ice on the right-hand face and rock on the left, and it was blind. You couldn't get any. You couldn't get a pin in. You couldn't even get a knife blade in at all. And Adrian led it the first time, and he climbed with a crampon on the right foot and a boot on the left foot, just a normal, not a rock shoe, <laughs> like a mountaineering boot. And he climbed that up into the a groove, which had ice in the back of it, but the crooks was coming up to this big flake, off-width flake, that was, I think it's still graded 10C. I mean, but, and, you know, he had some protection at the bottom of it. And, he, and I think he, well, he never took his pack up. No, he, he did it without his pack. So he didn't climb the pack. But you had to reach up and get into this layback position underneath and round this flake. 
And if he'd have taken a flyer from there, if his strength had been going, he would have taken a 70-footer, 80-footer, certainly 60 to 70, maybe 60 to 80-footer. And he would have hurt himself because he would have smashed down. I mean, he probably would have died. You know, so we couldn't have got him off. How many, how many moments like that did you find on that route, particularly where you were basically free soloing? No, most most of it you could protect. Okay. Yeah, you could protect. I mean, you could, you know, with hexes, there was just that wide stuff mm-hmm. like that you could not protect. You know, there was, I mean, not you couldn't protect well. You know. Um, there were probably some a wider crack higher up that was, I don't know, I mean, who knows the grade, five, nine plus or whatever, you know, that had rime ice in it that was wide. Because the widest piece we had was a number 10 hex turned sideways. So that's, what's that? That, that like would be the, that's fish size, yeah. Fish size, yeah. Yeah. So if it got wider than that, you really had to just climb in it and get up it, you know. In the book, you it was I think it was Adrian that wrote this chapter. He talked about um, a knot that came undone or popped as you guys were repelling, oh, and he caught both ends. Dave was um, just um, it was a half inch tape, tubular tape, tied, but it hadn't been tied far enough away from the knot. Okay. Or double so back. The, the the tags were too short. Yeah, yeah. Or it, or, or you know, it was pulling at an angle, and there was um, and Dave was just about to go off on it, obviously first down, and he'd saw the knot, pull you know basically unravel pulling out, and just grabbed the rope or grabbed Dave and pulled him back. Yeah. Wow. He would have yeah. just fallen to his death. He would have taken both ropes as well. Oh my God. <laughs> Although we did carry a spare rope because sometimes when you pull the rope down in the wind, it, stuck. it could blow away and get. Well, you know, when we were trying, well, basically coming down in wind, what Aiden would do, he would, I would have the rope around me, uh, probably in a pack or something, and then he would lower me on the end and I would just pay the rope out. So he'd lower me on one rope. And I'd pull the other rope out. And then I would tie it to the anchor and stand in it, if it was a spike, to hold it from blowing off the anchor at the top in case it lifted off a rock spike at the top. Yeah, I've read uh, read stories of ascents up in Fitzroy and Saratory, and they, they say, like, repelling, you'll throw the ropes down, and then they'll oh. go up past you. Oh, yeah. Up the oh, other yeah. way. Or up is okay. Out sideways mm. is not a good idea because it catches on flakes, and then mm. you screw. You can't get if you're in a storm up there and your ropes are off to the side somewhere. Ugh, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. Freeze to death. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, yeah, that's why we had an, we carried an extra rope. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I'm assuming you wouldn't tie any catastrophe knots or anything in the bottom of the rope because hypothetically, if it flies away, that's just no. Well, stuck because if it was that, more, right? they'd lower me. I'd go down first, being lowered, taking the rappel rope with me. Basically, that's how it worked. That makes sense. Yeah. And then I would stand in the end, gotcha. mm-hmm. you know, if it was a, if it could lift to stop it lifting, mm-hmm. and then they would repel down. You know, there was always some slack in it, enough to repel on. It's honestly pretty smart. 
And we, and we had figure of eight, you know, yeah. where we're repelling one, I think. Max, anything else on uh, on uh, Fitzroy? No, man, just uh, pretty crazy and such an amount, amazing mountain range. And I know for myself, just I, I would love to go climb in Patagonia someday. But I, yeah, it's it's uh, it's such a committing route, and that's even with all the modern gear that I have access to, it's terrifying and committing and scary. And so I just can't even imagine with a number 10 X being my largest piece of gear. And <laughs> yeah, I think the, the lessons in patience yeah, on that in that area in general seem to be um, quite common from all the ascents. People just talking about storms, just being consistent. I, I think mm-hmm. the big thing now is weather forecasting. I mean, mm-hmm. they've got, they know there's a window coming up. They can be in place, ready, <laughs> and with really good head torches. You know, you can do super long days. You know, you probably wouldn't need to bivouac. I mean, you know, we'd never practiced climbing rock in the dark, which people do now. You know, they'll climb, they'll start. I mean, if if you're doing it now from an ice cave there, which you wouldn't because you'd do it from lower down and you'd just use a head torch, you'd go up the Italian couloir to the Col Seizure, you'd, all that would be in the dark. You'd climb the first... I don't know, four or five pictures, four pictures anyway, in the dark. And that would buy you time at the end of the day to get back down mm-hmm. in the daylight. And we're talking about weather windows that last less than 24 hours. I don't know if anybody would do it in a window less than 24 hours. Okay. That would be pretty necky to try that. But still, I mean, I guess I'm, what I'm, the point I'm trying to drive home is even with these weather windows, they are relatively short. Yeah. I mean, if you get a 24-hour window... You know, I mean, you can climb a decent distance, but that's all you're getting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're having to climb, I don't think you're going to be, you're not going to be climbing as fast if you're going to be climbing 12 hours in the dark. That yeah. would be really te- tenuous, you know, unless it was aid climbing or something, you know, or quite easy, um, easy mixed or whatever. But, you know, if it's technical climbing, I think that would be kind of tricky. Yeah. You know, I mean... We were, because we knew we were going to bivouac, we were, you know, carrying down jackets. Um, we probably had a light, super lightweight sleeping bag as well, I think, for there. I mean, we never had Gore-Tex, so we didn't have Gore-Tex. We may have had, they used to have these bivy bags called Zardsky sacks, which was like a big nylon envelope that you sat facing one another and pulled over your head and sat on. Right, and you could then create a gap between you where you could cook. But um, you know, they would get really condensation inside and stuffy as hell, and you could put you really care not to poison yourself, you know, <laughs> you know, carbon monoxide poisoning with the stove. I mean, normally there's enough air going around, yeah, you know, yeah. for sure. But but it wasn't it wasn't like Gore Gore-Tex changed a lot. You know, I mean, certain things change climbing. You know. Uh, what what first changed, um, really changed? Gore-Tex changed alpine climbing. Plastic boots changed high-altitude climbing. Cams changed rock climbing. Those three there things definitely changed things. You know, Gore-Tex meant that um, Gore-Tex and fleece together meant that you didn't get iced up. Your sweater didn't form ice, you know, inside condensation and stuff, which used to happen, you know, winter climbs in the Alps. Yeah. So actually, I think this is a perfect transition. Um, 
this particular problem that you're talking that Gore-Tex solved um, was spoken specifically on the ascent of the north face of the Huascara Norte. Uh, I remember you specifically towards the top, you had icicles dripping water on you and they were freezing the instant they touched your jacket. Right. Yeah. That was you, you recommended You talked about the fact that there was no Gore-Tex back then and how much of it was saved. So on that note, let's kind of dive into that ascent. Um, you know, tell us again, same thing, kind of the history of the mountain range, where it's at, what kind of objective you're looking at. So after Fitzroy, so we climbed it on the end of February and then we came back into Buenos Aires, went overland to Bolivia and climbed there in May, and then came over into Peru to climb in the Cordillera Blanca in Peru. Um, I don't know if it was July or August. It was, it was in that summer period. Um, we were looking for an objective. We went up to the town there, what's it called? It's kind of... Uh, it's almost like the Zermatt of the Cordillera Blanca now. And um, there was one hotel there that the climbers stayed at. And it was on the fifth floor. There was like a dormitory, DOS place. And the owner of the hotel had a magazine. And he said, Wascaran Norte, the French route, it is a classic. Well, we, <laughs> we thought a classic means, you know, it's been done lots of times. And it's a classic, right? It's a classic. We didn't know it hadn't been repeated. It had done once? It had been done once. Wow. So what happened was a big French expedition <laughs> was supposed to be going to Janu in the Himalaya and for some reason didn't go and they chose to come to Huascaran instead. And Huascaran Norte is the small lower peak, north peak of Huascaran, which is the highest in the blank in Peru which is about 22,500, I think. So it has some altitude to it. You know, it's not super high, but it's 22,500, reasonable, you know. And north face means that it actually faces south, oh. right? Well, it, it's the uh, no, north facing, but it's, um, it, it's in like the southern it's facing south in, in America. The, in the southern hemisphere. In the southern yeah. it's switched. Wow, it's that's switched. super interesting. Yeah. So, but it has ice on it because wow. it's high enough, wow. you know. And so the seasons are switched too. So you're yes. in summer, and so that means you're winter down there. Well, you know, it isn't, or is it closer enough it to the equator? It's in you climb in uh, Bolivia's best time is May, and Peru is summer. Mm. So, whatever it is, it's that's the that's season. The season. Yeah. It's the opposite down in Patagonia for yes. sure, uh -huh. you know. Um, that's the best time is down there. It is over there winter. Yeah. Over January, December, January. So, so how did you get information about this climb? Well, just particular? from that magazine. What What was in the magazine? Just it was pictures? Like a French, it was a French magazine that described how they climbed it. And they climbed it using fixed lines from this. It's a big face. You know, it's probably... It's, it certainly felt 5,000 foot. It might be six. Wow. You know, it's a big face, and you know, get felt. It feels as though it's as big as the north face of the Eiger or something. It might be a thousand foot shorter, or maybe just the rubble at the bottom of the Eiger. But yeah, and so they all the the best. It was Parago, 
And so it was some of the best French climbers of the day, and they fixed lines all the way up this thing. Mm-hmm. And um, one guy was killed on the descent, probably from falling rocks, I would imagine, or maybe a fixed rope broke or something. I don't know. I can't remember. But that's we had a diagram and a dis- rough description of it. Mm-hmm. So that's we didn't, there's no guidebook on it, <laughs> anything <laughs> like that, you know. So the three of us, Brian Hawley and myself, went to it. Um, we'd been in Bolivia, so you know, up to 20,000 there. So we're kind of reasonably acclimatized, not super acclimatized because we'd come back down again, but got up to the foot of it and we had a couple of nights. I think that's at the foot of it, picture in the book. Okay. That's the camp at the bottom of Waskara. Is that the face? No, no, that's looking across the valley. Okay. It's, it's this, way. this way. But okay. just look at the clothing we're wearing. Yeah. I mean, Adrian's, Adrian's got a, you know, hand-knit sweater, mm-hmm. right? What, what have I got there? Some fleece jacket. Is it a, is it some fleece? Yeah. I don't know if it's a homemade fleece if it is, I think. Because <laughs> we didn't get fleece jackets commercially until maybe 75 or something, 76. Wow. Um, but we, we had good down sleeping bags and down jackets, you mm-hmm. know. And we had reasonably, reasonably good ice gear. Not not as good as nowadays, but mm-hmm. you could front point, that's okay. for sure. Uh, so, Al, I just have a quick question for you. I'm just really... I'm kind of just wondering, so like, what's your, you know, what, what was your feeling at the time? You know, just you're, you're, you're out here, you're in this area, you simply just see a magazine cover, um, obviously with a little bit of deception from the hotel owner. And, uh, you decide to go out and climb this thing, this 65 or 6,600 meter mountain that, that hasn't really been repeated with really limited information. I'm just kind of wondering, what what was your your general feeling at the time? Like, were you excited? Were you terrified? Were you worried of dying? Like, how how was your mentality going into this? Um, well, savagely optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because you know, you got that ma- magic. Amazing. The yeah. climb, you see, it starts up through this glacial system that really was very fractured and dangerous and we only had one snow picket we had one or two snow pickets with us that was it yeah it said one in the book yeah i think we just had one snow yeah one snow picket and i don't know a few ice crews and some pins so we couldn't get back down i mean once we were on that face you screwed We, we had to get up it and because the first day of these ice runnels the runnels are made apparently by warm air rising rather than stuff coming down. And they form these plaques of a, a, a surface plaque of ice over looser snow. And so, you know, you, you're always scared that the whole thing's going to peel off. So it's not, it's not like normal uh, gully climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's basically no anchors in it. And there's three or four rope lengths up this thing at the beginning. There's a hard, there's a hard Bergson pitch that Brian led that would have been, if you were climbing it with modern ice tools now, it would be grade four, a grade four ice pitch, right? Back then with the tools we had, it was kind of stretched Mm -hmm. what we could do because it wasn't super thick ice. It was mixed as well. But what that led us into this, you know, 55 degree runnel that we basically just climbed and 
you know, you had one ice picket. I mean, the leader really, nobody could fall. Yeah. I mean, maybe the ice picket, if you were bringing a second up, that you could hold him on an ice picket or an ice axe hammered in, but there were not even ice crews there or rock, nothing, no rock showing or anything. But yeah, I mean, basically, the, the second or third person got some form of security. The leader got nothing. The leader could not fall. If the leader fell, we were all going. Was the the second or third Jumaring on? No, the no, line? climbing. You no. had to climb. You had to climb. And yeah, the anchors weren't good enough. To the ice axe was just there for what? Well, because, psychological. Well, you know, if an ice axe is in and somebody slips, it's on 50 degree ice. You're not falling backwards, okay. right? It's you just could, you could probably hold enough to hold them. Just enough. And, you know, plus, if one person's already climbed it, the steps are there. Ah. It's only if a step broke or if a plaque broke off mm -hmm. that you could protect the second and third person. Right, and the chances are, I, d I don't think we both climbed together. Like the second and third person did not climb together, which we often would have done mm -hmm. had the anchors been good. Just it was kind of sketchy, mm -hmm. so you you know you just climbed it with the leader protecting you. Well, we couldn't get back down this thing. We, I don't know. We couldn't have repelled it. I don't think at all. Just there's nothing there. I wouldn't have repelled on that snow stay. We were pulled, you know, and that led us up onto a, a low ridge um, where we got onto a ledge. We cut a ledge out on this thing and we were really dehydrated. We took a rest day there to hydrate. Yeah. So that was one of the big things that you, you talked about in this chapter was the dehydration. Like your your stove was made out of kerosene. You you, you had cut the, the line for the, the gas stove. We had, we had an early model. MSR stove, not the GX one where you can pull it out and clean it. Mm. And I had somehow figured I could fix it and basically butchered it. So it wasn't working anymore. So you couldn't use the white gas. White gas stove wasn't there. But we borrowed from this one manager. He had a, an old kerosene stove, Primus, that had a half pint tank, maybe it had a pint tank and three little legs on it. You had to prime it to get it warm enough, it was kerosene. And it had one of those pennies, metal pennies that sit on the top. You know, well, it's more like a, a, a dot size of a dollar coin. Mm -hmm. And um, and you cooked on that. You, it was no hanging stoves. Yeah. We didn't have butane. Butane stoves were around, but we couldn't get the cylinders then down there. That was the problem. And so you, you guys are up here. You have this shitty stove. And you're dying from dehydration. And well, we're super dehydrated. Yeah. yeah. And so, so took, you guys yeah. took the day just to Melt re snow, rehydrate. To rehydrate. Yeah. yeah. And that was at the cost of your food supply. Well, at that point, you were yeah. like half rations already. Well, we're already going pretty light. Mm -hmm. And so, again, yeah. like, why did you choose to come up with so little gear? Well, because if you, if you start fix roping and have so much gear, you're not going to be able to climb with a pack. Or you're going to have to keep fixed roping and going back down the fixed rope. Even if you have 600 foot of fixed rope and a moving fixed line, you know, actually the anchors weren't good enough. Mm -hmm. I would have been very dodgy doing that. Yeah, and you also, really heavy packs, I would just put way more stress. Yeah, on the and system, also right? the weather. If you have Alpine weather, anchor, it's yeah. never, you know. 
stable. St- that I mean, we were lucky to get that stable period of weather. Mm-hmm. However, many seven days or something were on it. We were super lucky to get that. And I mean, that was one thing, taking a rest day. That's a risk because of weather. You know, maybe maybe you're going to get caught that last day near the summit by a fucking almighty storm, you know. and so, But we had to because we were absolutely dehydrated. And then from there, you know, the climbing got more technical, but less dangerous probably. Um, and the last day, you know, you talk about the bit where I'm sat. Um, so real, before, I think before we get to that point, yeah. uh, you had gotten through more technical ice climbing. Uh, you got to this higher point where you saw that you had climbed above where you were needing to go and you had to repel and then traverse left. Yeah. And so I remember Adrian talking about how sketchy that particular situation was and, and how all three of your team's weights and bags and gears were resting on the ice screws that you right. guys had in the yeah. wall. You want yeah. to kind of talk about No, there was no ledge. No, no ledge. We probably had two ice screws in, I would imagine. We okay. may have had one each in. But... And so how are you repelling at such a high altitude? Well, what, what we were doing is basically um, – it was like a, a pen, more like a pendulum. Brian, Brian led that pit. Mm-hmm. So he climbed up, realized that he needed to be down to the left, um, got, had some decent ice, and I think we just lowered him down that section. With a, like a B-thread or? No, 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 off an ice crew. Okay. Lowered him off an ice crew. Uh-huh. No, we didn't know how to do V-threads. Okay. There was no such thing. Gotcha. Right? I wish if we had, that would have been totally different. Yeah. But... We might have tried to come down. <laughs> That's one thing. But we didn't have enough gear. So you know, we lowered off an ice crew, lowered him down. Then he put an, made an anchor down there with an ice crew. And then when we climbed up, I think either we – I think we probably climbed up to that point and then clipped a sling on, and, and then he lowered us down or the next person lowered us down. It wasn't like we never actually – I don't think we repelled. I can't remember. Did you retrieve the screw? No, I think we had to leave you it. You had to leave it. I think we had to leave it. Wow. I'm pretty sure. Yes, we would have had to because no way could you climb down. Yeah. We wanted to climb down. Okay. Right? And that got us to the bottom of the final rock buttress mm-hmm. then. And yeah, I think you guys, it was just getting super cold. You guys were super tired at that point. We were hungry. Yeah. So we, the, you know, the, I think the big thing we were shouting, if anybody knows about yeah. Peru, they have these chicken and chip place, French fry places, right? And they have big rotisserie chickens. And we said, when we get back, we're going to have one chicken each. <laughs> so when everybody was getting tired, just think of the chickens. <laughs> think of the chickens. <laughs> you know, just we're starving. Starving, yeah. We're starving. Wow. Um, so I'm wondering, Al, what, what was your, like, going, what, what was your experience previously with altitude? Like, how how high did you actually climb up originally to acclimate? Or was your process just kind of slow and steady enough that your bodies could acclimate well, to we'd the climb to- as you were doing it? And had you had you previously climbed anything even remotely? Um, this we'd high? been to twenty thousand feet in India. Um, okay, so and we knew a little bit about altitude, and also you know we'd just come back from Bolivia. You know, I climbed the west face of um, whatever the peak. I forgot the name of the peak down there now, but it's it's a decent peak and it's twenty thousand feet. You know, 
So we'd been there. Okay, gotcha. now, now we knew we were going pretty slowly. So it wasn't like we were breaking trail up to the waist at 26,000 feet. You know, it, it was, you were climbing mm-hmm. technical stuff. And if it got too hard, you took your pack off and pulled it. Although most of it, by the time we got to the top, the packs didn't weigh much. There was no food in it, you know. No food or anything. No food, no gear. No, just a sleeping <laughs> bag and a down jacket, light yeah. down jacket kind of deal. So, but um, it, we never really, I never felt the altitude impinged on us on the technical climbing. I never felt that, you know. I mean, it probably did a bit, but we never, it might, we might have felt it the First day going through the glacier or something, you know, pounding uphill and stuff, soft snow and stuff. But on the more technical climbing, it didn't seem like it made, because it wasn't, you were on your feet a lot, right? But you weren't doing one step gasp, you know, when you see these high altitude pictures, guys coming one step. It wasn't that. You were climbing, breathing fine, yeah. and we were probably acclimatizing pretty well. You know, as I said, you know, well, the top of this thing is 21 and a half. The highest peak is 22, the higher peak, mm-hmm. but this is the north peak. So the top's 21 and a half, and from the top of the face, it's 500 foot to the summit probably. So the, so the top is at 21,000, top of the face. Yeah, one of one of the things I've noticed with altitude, and I've had no experience with anything close to twenty thousand, but even still, I feel like, like you said, the the effects of the altitude, at least for me, were felt the most on like hard approaches with like a lot of uh, aerobic effort, or when you're sitting in a belay and you're not moving at all because you're not breathing enough to like compensate for the lack of oxygen, and so you almost have to like remember to breathe. At a belay, is that, yeah. is that something you found as you well? When breathe. you start yawning a lot because you're not you breathing can, enough, you can, you can, you can do that. Mm-hmm. I think we just, you know, it was cold enough. That day that we did the big traverse, I remember because the cloud came up when we were doing it. Yeah, so it was pretty atmospheric. You know, we were thinking, shit. I mean, this is like the Hinterstrasse traverse on the Eiger, no going down. Mm-hmm. Well, we knew already we couldn't get down. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have enough gear. You know. Um, so, and, and, you know, the, there was not that good ice to, even to do threads. I would have been, there was in some places, but no, you couldn't have just automatically repelled off mm-hmm. using ice threads or rock pins. There's, there's a lot of, uh, some steep snow, you know, like snow with rocks around it. And it's hard to tell because I didn't think about it. Maybe you could have got down, but so wouldn't have been easy. How how did you get down? That was one thing in the book that you didn't cover. Oh, you went over the top, and then what? Then down the normal route. So is that a a hike or? Well, yeah, more or less. Okay, I mean it's just it's like a moderate alpine climb that you can climb down ice facing out. Oh, okay. You know, okay. so 45 no, no, no technical. No, 45 degrees. I think we made one repel because we okay. left the ice cool there. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, you're at the end of that trip. I remember you were talking to Brian about the next objective already. Yeah. And we had this big plan for this other phase. And he uh, said, you know, this is in quotes, you two can't keep on doing harder and harder routes without something going wrong. 
What it did was probably right? What did that like quotes like mean to you? If if at all, like did you hear it or was it just noise? Um, did it cause any sort of reflection about your trajectory and your climbing career? And 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 did you have any uh, uh, a fear about? you know, how lucky you've been so far and, and, you know, whether you're, you're pushing your luck with what you were trying to achieve. I think that we felt that our experience was good enough to judge what was dangerous and what was risky Mm -hmm. and what was worth, you know, what was a calculated risk, you know, for example, if you know you're strong enough that you can move, do this length in this length of time, then, Maybe rocks fall down in the afternoon or after, or when the sun comes up. But if you know you're fast enough to get up it before the sun comes up, then that's a calculated risk, mm-hmm. you know, because there could be rocks coming down in the dark, but way less so. Mm-hmm. And no, I think we've, there's this. I remember giving a slideshow once to these people. This was after I'd stopped high-altitude climbing and alpine climbing. And I, I remember saying, if you, can, if you can't go to get to the foot of a route, look up at the face and say, this mountain is not going to kill me, not this time. If you can't say that, turn around and go back. Mm-hmm. You've got to have that level of confidence to push, to move, you know, not to dither around and to know your own strength that it will not, cannot kill you. It will not kill you. I mean, whether or not it's obviously not 100% true, <laughs> you have to feel it's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you can't say that, don't go. Yeah. That's my advice. Don't go. Max, I think this kind of like a, links into the topic of expectation that we we've talked about before in, in previous podcasts where, you know, there has to be a level of expectation in the things that we want to achieve and the things we want to have in our life. And I think that it just, it rings so true. Like if you, if you're going into a climb and you were already expecting to fail, or you, you think that that's going to be a, a large possibility, then you're already, you know, in the wrong. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's a, it's a powerful mindset to have. And I think can, can, uh, in a weird way, almost be the, the difference between whether a rock takes you out at night or not. Yeah. Um, is just believing in the fact that it won't, uh, Yeah, which is, it's kind of mystical, but yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell the story later that isn't in the book. And, uh, you know, it's like sometimes, I mean, I'm not doing hard plans anymore, you know, certainly had alpine routes and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, because, because it, everything's moved on technically as well, as well as equipment, mm-hmm. you know. And so it doesn't interest, and, you know, I am no longer really interested in, like, guiding on Mount Everest and fucking going up fixed lines, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. that does not. I mean, the one thing about this, you know, Fitzroy, we came down. It was granite, good repel stuff terrible weather possibilities. Mm-hmm. That weather was the risk. Weather was the main risk. I would say the only risk, really, unless you fell off that unprotected pitch. But that was the main risk was weather. On Huascaran Norte, it is a much better weather area. 
that there's many other things going on. There was collapse in Seracs on the glacier. There was the conditions of the snow and ice. And you couldn't get back. And that that made it special when you did it. I mean, it made it special because you had to keep going. You had to fucking keep going, you know, to climb out the top. You know, it's almost as though you were putting a coffin, somebody hammered the bloody lid down, and you had to kick it off, you know. And if you don't kick it off in a certain time, you're going to suffocate. You have to get it. We had to go over the top of this thing. So what one interesting thing, when we got to the top, you know, it's uh, the weather's reasonable, but it's breezy. Obviously, it's 21,000 feet. That's breezy. And, um, <laughs> and Brian, Brian turns to us and says, what if the chicken places are closed? <laughs> <laughs> and Aidan and I looked at one another. We went, well, why should they be? We said, well, it's Sunday. We said, Sunday, fuck, I, can't, I have no idea what day of the week is. Why is it Sunday? He says, I can hear the bells ringing in the bloody valley. Oh, wow. We were like, bells ringing in your head, dude. <laughs> There's no bells ringing. You've got ears like a dog. <laughs> you can hear bells in the valley from up here. <laughs> this is sheer delirious. <laughs> so, so did you end up with your chicken out? Was that, Max? Did you end oh, up with yeah. your chicken? Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a page, yeah. <laughs> Eat a, a chicken each? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Chicken with chicken. I think you just need the right the right motivator. Is that it? When you're on committing routes that involve potentially risking your life, is you just need strong motivators like large roast chicken. I think the, the motivators probably change the more desperate it gets. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And it was good because some of the more technical climbing, actually, it was on the last day. Yeah. The very last day. Um, well, not the last day between the, the hike up to the snow to the summit, but because it started off with um, some lie backing up granite corners and one uh, one overhang. I remember I was trying to climb it free because I didn't want to put all the pins in. And there were, I found it must have been an old pin from the French. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, yeah. I clipped into it. And started to stand in it, and it started to pull down and slip. And I quickly moved up off it and went, that pin's not a good one. (laughs) Be careful. And when I got the rope ran out, you know, I didn't have a lot of rope left. And it ended at this, um, where the granite kind of ran into the top of a steep headwall of ice. And the ice was probably 70 degrees, 75 degrees. Right, you know, it's that kind of hard glacier ice, and it ran under. And I had a hard time finding an anchor. Mm. I remember I had two pitons, and none of them were horizontal. Like you know, I don't, if you've ever used pitons, the best piton is horizontal. Um, the next one is probably in a vertical crack, in a narrowing where there's a, uh, a narrowing, a constriction below and above, so it can't pull out. Um, I remember it being at a baby angle up, up, it sang into this crack, but it was like, fuck, it's not exactly mechanic. We call it mechanically sound. It was just, you know, friction. Um, friction yeah. And I had two pins, two or three. I tried to build an anchor. There was no ledge. I mean, it was standing on footholds. Wow. 
trying not to fucking lean on the anchor, you know. And Adrian came through, and he, he um, with ice tools, he cut little nicks in the ice, like he'd cut one at his eye level and then crampon up into it, mm-hmm. sidestep into it. Mm-hmm. And then he'd, so it wasn't total front pointing because it was really hard ice. Mm. It, wasn't, uh, it wasn't just white ice or water ice. It was green glacial ice, you know. And so he's using his ads on the back of the axe to, to chip footholds? No, he's, u- he's using the pick. The pick. Okay. He's using the pick. I think he has a chenard hammer uh-huh. in one, a curved hammer, short one. And then he had his wooden shaft. He had it, he had it dropped uh-huh. for ice climbing. Which, which was a really good ice tool, even though it was a wooden shafted one. And it would chip something with that. But that thing really held. Mm-hmm. It was good. Anyway, he led that last pitch. And when we came over the top of that pitch, it was almost flat. I mean, it was, it was kind of, the, you know, 10 degrees, 5 degrees. Mm-hmm. And we cut a big ledge there and camped there that night and then hiked to the summit next morning and then ran down the normal route. Wow. Just crazy. That's the the commitment level for for that particular climb just is uh is inspiring and just definitely next level. And and then it was only after, yeah, you know, I don't know when it was after, that we found out that it was a second ascent. <laughs> we thought it's a classic. Second ascent after you. No, it was a second ascent of that. So there was the first ascent was the French, did it yep. with fixed lines, yep. and then we did the second ascent of it. Yeah. Oh, style. yours was the second Ours ascent. Ours was the yeah. second ascent. Wow. Yeah. And you're, you're... And so you would have been the first, first Alpine yeah. ascent yeah. of that yeah. in Alpine style. And Fitzroy yeah. was the third. Uh, wow. It was the third of that route. That route. Yeah, yeah but it had all been climbed by... It had been, Eight other people, I think it was. I can't remember. Yeah. I know there's certainly three other routes on mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Okay, um, Logan, Mount Logan, talk to us about the history, the background, kind of where we're at elevation-wise, the route grade, and your, like Max said in the last time, like your mindset and your your plan of attack for this particular route that you're you're going for. Right. So, so Wascar Note was seventy-five, right? So in nineteen seventy-eight, I in the spring. I officially emigrated to Canada. Uh, I don't know if you want to know all the, how I did this, or, or is the statute of limitations are now out on it? Probably are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I emigrated as a small-engined auto mechanic um, because you're getting, you're getting small Japanese cars coming in now in the early 70s, well, mid-70s, say. So... I went for an interview with greasing my fingernails in Manchester uh, to the consulate, Canadian consulate. I had a friend of a friend get me said that I worked as a auto, small engine auto mechanic in England, went for the interview with greasing my fingernails, and then had a job offer by a friend got me in Calgary, right, to work in a in a garage someplace well the reason they wanted to do this is because they didn't have to pay you very much because i never had an alberta license or a a national canadian license so they could pay me very little obviously i'm not a mechanic and i never worked 
you know. But I did emigrate <laughs> based on that. And so I've just arrived officially in Canada now, stamped, right? And I'd been there previously in 74, 75, and I'd met this, climbed with this young guy called John Lockland, who was an up-and-coming star, Canadian star, born in Canada. Because there was a lot of Brits who, were, who had emigrated or were second generation or whatever around the Calgary area, Calgary, Canmore, Banff area, and Vancouver. Um, but, but John was born in Canada, and I think he was only 17 or 18 when I climbed with him in 74, and we did some really good stuff. But he also became very competitive when Adrian and I were around because we were kind of, I was Canadian now, you know. The year prior, in 77, I think it was, they'd gone to the southwest buttress of Logan and tried to climb it alpine style. And had to. John had taken a fall. I don't know, he broke his ankle or cracked it, but had to have a helicopter rescue. He obviously had radios with him. So they had a helicopter rescue. So he wanted to go back the next year and finish the route. With him? Um, well, there was four people. And now what happened to one person? Because I was invited. Oh, one person um, was a ski guide, and he had an accident. We uh, cut his hand off. I think, oh, that, I think it was him. Anyway, there was suddenly a space left open on this team. <laughs> and there was a French-Canadian guy. <laughs> John Lockland and Jim Elzinger. Only Jim and I are now alive, incidentally. John died solo in Polar Circus in the early 80s, I think it was. Anyway, so I was down in Colorado climbing, and I got this call and an invite to come back up and see, join this, to be fourth man on the team. Wow. Is Adrian with you? Or is no, you? no, they just wanted me. Okay. Because and you know by then I was I was actually you know landed immigrant in Canada and mm -hmm. stuff. So what was the mountain? Yeah, exactly. What was the kind of the, the height of the mountains? Just I think it's nineteen thousand eight hundred or something. It's just under twenty thousand, but it's quite far north. That makes it feel higher because mm -hmm. it's in the subarctic areas, right? So it's definitely much fucking colder than than twenty thousand foot in Nepal, okay. for example. Um, and very and glaciated all, almost down to the sea. Wow, up there, wow. you know, I can't remember the name of the glacier stuff, but so it's um, it's not a difficult mountain to climb by the normal routes, you know. I mean, we we I we had cross country, I had cross country skis and almost skied down it, or fell skied down it. The others skied down it, they had metal edges. I had three pin bindings mm. and shitty skis. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. fucking, uh, yeah, fucking terrible. But that's the kind of terrain it is. So you can, that's it's called the King Trench Route. Yeah, that was that's where you the, got down. That's where we came down. Yeah. So this face had never been climbed, the Southwest Buttress. So we flew into the Kluwani Park or whatever. From there, we were going to be flown in, dropped 
and then a helicopter was going to take us to the foot of the face because it was super desperately glaciated and dangerous and would have needed a massive expedition even to approach that side of the mountain. So we got dropped off at the foot of the mountain. This time, four of us, I don't know, 10 days food, 12 days food or something, dehydrated, there's a lot of, anyway, lost a bit of weight, everybody did. But you're, it seems like you're more prepared for this climb than well, some of the other ones. We, little, little bit, but the, John Lachlan was very ambitious and he didn't want to take radio, he said no radios, okay? okay. No chance of fucking rescue then, <laughs> right? No <laughs> chance of rescue, that's a good one. I guess it's really in a wild position. Yeah. This is this is not like you know one day hike. I mean, this is a flight, a helicopter flight in the middle of fucking nowhere, mm -hmm. and there's no one else around. Mm -hmm. There's nobody, and they did arrange for a couple of flybys for this plane that was that was dropping people on the trench route mm -hmm. on the yeah that way. So that was it was super committing. Again, no way out. We've got to go over the top of this fucking thing, wow. right, to get out. And they used to have a research station on the King Trench route on the, uh, about, I don't I can't remember the altitude, a 1,000 foot, 2,000 below the summit, something, 1,500, somewhere down there, there's a research place. So they had radios, and they could land a plane up there, mm -hmm. like, you know, obviously in good weather. So... We had our skis. Oh, John Lachlan had a girlfriend working in that research place. So we all had all our skis taken in on one of the planes and kept at that research place. So if we could get over the top and down to the research place, we were okay. So it wasn't quite as desperate as having to go all the way down the King Trench in a storm or something. Although that, that turned out a bit different. But So this face is 10,000 foot, right? And the temperatures are going to be much colder. We still had leather boots, double leather, not single leather, but we didn't have co-flat insulated high altitude boots. We did have good dropped, reasonably good ice climbing tools, reasonable. Yeah, we were climbing grade six in waterfalls with them, you know, so you, they were good enough for that. We weren't running up on like modern tools and stuff, you know. Um, I had the first, one of the first Gore-Tex uh, one-piece suits that I bought from a guy in Colorado. And it was a one-piece Gore-Tex suit, just not a down suit, just like a, instead of a jacket and Like pant, a Gore-Tex shell. A Gore-Tex shell, but it was a, a one-piece, yeah. a full-body suit. And, and I had a sleeping bag that had a Gore-Tex stitched and sealed exterior to it. And the others didn't have that. Um, I made my own overboots, super gaiters, um, which is why I ended up having to use garbage bags instead of um, gaiters on the way down. Instead, <laughs> inside of, tied around the knees, inside my three pin ski boots. Fucking terrible. I should have, <laughs> I should have borrowed some proper skis to come down because uh -huh. I fell most of the way down. But so we start out on this route and cool water to start with. And it starts, second day, starts getting much colder and technical. What are we talking cold-wise? What, what uh, well, it's freezing at night. I mean, it's probably minus 10 or something. Celsius. Celsius, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's probably, it's getting down to 
Mine, no, it might, minus, it might be getting down there. It's not super because it gets much colder higher up. Yeah. But it, it's probably minus 10 there. But we've got really good down bags, good down jackets, and pretty good, reasonable gear. And our stoves, oh, we have crossover tent, hoop tents from REI. There weren't a lot of good tents around in those days. And those were very super light because we had to, weight was a critical issue. And we just had the liners because it was just going to be powder snow anyway. Um, the second day, um, John led the steep ice pitch and it came over to a size of a basketball court, a nice flat ledge on top of this Serac, basically. And the, the next section is where he fell off the year before. So he was really, I want to climb this again. Well, to get to this pitch, you traverse left off the edge of this flat little plateau and you're looking all the way down, I don't know how many thousand feet down to the glacier, but it's, it's four, three, four, anyway, it's a long way. And all I've got is a snow stake. This is no ice for an ice cruise. For an anchor? For an anchor. I've got a snow stake looking down there. And I'm saying, you be careful, John. Goes up the snow and then it gets to the rock. And the rock is slabby, but not in cut. And the pin that he fell on was still there. And it was a blade, horizontal blade peg. And he, he clips into that thing. And he starts going up it on his crampons and he's not cleaning the rock properly to, you know, because so he's trusting powder over slabby granite. Not a good idea. Fuck, he comes flying off again. Jesus Christ. Right? The same peg holds him. Oh he doesn't hurt himself this time. But I'm saying, fuck, John, if fucking that peg pulled, we'd both be down the glacier. Wow. Dead. And I fucking told him, yeah. if you fucking do that again, I, when I get up there, I'm going to fucking pound you. <laughs> and he climbed it then. He, he climbed it and got some ice crews in above. And, and then we left a fixed line down there and went back to a good sleep. And then we came back the next day, went up, up that little bit of fixed line that we left, or probably a climbing rope we left. It was, it was a climbing rope. And then I led the next pitch up around, and that was pretty irreversible because it was this traverse without anchors round over big drops and things. It wasn't flat face climbing. It seemed like there was a big, huge yawning gully to the right. And we kind of snuck around the corner of it. And if you fell, you went down there. And, you know, I had some ice crews at each end of it but nothing on the traverse, you, you know. It was pretty sketchy. But we, we got onto the upper face, and this is where things started to get a little bit out of control. Just went up this big ice slope of about 55 degrees, which Jim, with his fucking tree trunk legs, led. And, you know, and then I think I am Jumarin, because I think I'm, I don't know if I'm bringing another pack up, but I think, I think we are, I can't remember if we're actually Jumaning up, or I think we probably are. But um, we get to this, where it gets to the steep rock, probably the crooks, crooks one of the crooks anyway. And um, we cut two ledges, one above the other, and I'm on the upper one with Ray, with Ray, the, my partner. And, uh, you know, it's, 
it hardly ever comes dark. You know, there's not much darkness there. But there was a fucking day. I don't know if we spent two nights there or one or two, but it started snowing and shedding snow. And at one point, a big woofer, powder woofer, came over, flattened our tent. Um, Ray got pushed off the ledge, but he was, we were all tied in. And um, I'm bloody, it's getting between me. It's trying to push me off. And eventually it goes, I think it builds enough snow up over me that it actually then splits around it, you know. And I we get back on um, and it's, I think this is in the dark. Anyway, what I wanted to do is to, this next, we had four, you know, we had 600 foot of, of climbing rope. You know, we had two, two climbing on two nine mils each, 150 foot. So we had four of them. I said, well, let's fix this section here, you know, which we can easily get over onto the easier terrain above with this, sleep in a good place here and drink and eat well. And then go, we can go up in the dark up the fixed lines and then just start climbing. But John and Jim, John was like, no, we should just continue climbing. So, you know, John led that section and I was bringing the, uh, without a pack, I think I was pulling the packs up or something. We got over to the top of this thing and then it went, there was a slight easing on the snow slope probably 45 degrees, and we cut big bucket steps, seats to sit in. We couldn't cut a flat ledge. We just cut seats to sit in, and we had ice axe belays. And that night, it dropped to minus 45. Oh, my God. Right? Fucking really cold. I had my boots on inside the pack loosened up, inside my sleeping bag loosened up. In the morning... Spindrift was blowing everywhere. The ropes are kind of around here, frozen all over. And I thought, this is where you just fucking make excuses to yourself. We'll just, I'll just sleep a bit more. I'm tired. <laughs> and I went, fuck it. No, I'm not dying here. Yeah. So I got up and start put my crampons on and started to just... I called the uncut, flaked the rope, put crampons on and started just soloing up the bottom of the final gully. Uh, probably about 800 foot, 1,000 foot of gully left. Just and to warm up, because that started to warm me up, mm -hmm. right? just the movement. And I must have got about a rope length up when I'm shouting to the others, come on, get up, move, move. And then, you no, know, because I'd started the momentum, then, you know, there's no brewing. We need to brew. We need this. We need that. Get up and get out. Get up and get out. Otherwise, you're going to freeze to death. Wow. And um, then we, we kept going up this. And it wasn't that technical, the gully. There's some steeper bits in it. And it came out on a glacier at the top in the sunshine. And we spent a fantastic night there. It was, uh, it was just comfortable. The sun, you could dry your sleeping bag out because it was starting to get iced up, you know, with all the nights with powder and everything cold. Um, from there, this is where it looked as though the summit was over to the right. And John and Jim said, 
we want to just continue, even though it's not technically difficult, but we want to just keep going up this shoulder here over to the summit because it'll make the line more direct. Well, my partner, Ray, was already starting to get in pretty bad condition. I think psychologically more than anything, but definitely losing it. He, was, he couldn't lead. I was cooking for him. I was taking care of him. And we, we could have traversed left round this little glacial bit to the foot of another gully. And we thought this gully led up. And if anything went wrong with Ray, I could just take him straight down the other side of the gully, down the other side of the ridge, straight down to the research place and get him off the mountain. And as it happened, we if we'd have taken that gully, that would have maybe that would have happened. This gully brought us out like 15 minutes from the summit. So we basically dropped our packs, hiked to the summit, took summit photos, came back down, and then I broke trail all the way. I remember because it was like just below the knee for an hour and a half or something, all the way back down to this camp. But Jim and John ended up having another bivouac because I think Jim was starting to get the, an altitude because he'd been doing a lot of hard work, you know, more than John had really, I think. And so he started to feel the altitude and then they arrived next morning. So you summited with your team first? Well, yeah, but we don't, you know. I mean, whoever, it, the, we, the, the timing doesn't matter. I'm just, no. for the sake of the story. For the sake of the story, yeah, we, we summited kind of a few hours mm -hmm. before they did. You know, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, we all summited, yeah. even though slightly various routes at the top, mm -hmm. you know, there was no, the, the final days were pretty, the final day was pretty easy. Final few hours was fairly straightforward. Um, and I consider that, you know, we did, you know, Jim and I are really good friends nowadays. Mm -hmm. And certainly I'm not saying that we summited the day before. Him. Of course. No, it's a, it's a team effort. We summited a few yeah. hours before. Because you've got to think of this as, um, you know, if we summited at 11 o'clock at night and it was just going dark for an hour and they summited, like, you know, at 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning, they literally were right behind us. You know? Yeah, I was just uh, more driving yeah. home the fact that you guys took separate routes. You guys yes. chose to split up. And that yeah. was because of race that condition. That was Ray, race your condition. race condition. And we took, chose, because I thought this gully was going to, give us an out. Mm -hmm. I could leave him there, go to the summit, mm -hmm. come back and take him down. Mm -hmm. Or I could even take him down and then go back to the summit, mm -hmm. wherever, you know. The route finished at the top of that narrow gully, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. So you, you've summited now, you get back to the research station, you oh, grab yeah. your skis. Yeah, we spend the night there, and then we, you've got to go you've over this little pass mm -hmm. and come down, down the trench route. Well, we did. I, I'd wrecked it in the morning. I'd gone up there to find it. And coming down, even with my silly skis, I could just point them straight down. And they would, you know, the conditions, I hardly had to turn. They just came straight out to the research place. So you can tell it wasn't that difficult. <laughs> but going down the other side, so we went, all went over down the other side. And it was steeper to start with. I think we actually rappelled down or climb down. Yeah, I certainly was going to ski down and none, the others were good skiers and they didn't ski down either. Mm -hmm. and, and then we put the one tent up 
and we were hit by this fucking storm, a fantastic windstorm. And, and I'm saying, you know, if this, we're heading down the trench route, we've never come up on a glacial system with big crevasses. If it's storming in the morning, I say it's only a few hundred feet back up to that col and straight down the other side to the research place. I'm pretty confident I could do that. And I said, that's what I'm going to do tomorrow, guys. Because Ray's doing even worse at this point. Right? Yeah. yeah. I said, that's what I'm doing. You know, And they were saying, well, you're going to leave us? No, you can come with me. Mm-hmm. It, well, the weather cleared. It was clear and a blue sky in the morning. And, you know, John went out because he was getting cold and the tent was starting to stretch at the seams. There were four of us sat in. We had it tied down with skis, right? The fucking thing was doing this. I thought it's going to just destroy itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, John went out and started digging the snow hole, which was probably sensible because, um, you know, if we did have to stay there another night or so, the snow cave would have been the answer. It would have been better. Yeah, but I knew it wasn't that far up to the top of this thing without skis on, and then it was a straight ski straight down. I mean, maybe it would, would have seemed. Anyway, it cleared, and we spent all that day going down. Ray was very patient with me. He had clipped down Silvretta bindings on skis with edges, metal edges on, and I would ski first with my <laughs> racing snowplow. <laughs> and then... I'd hit ice and then I'd hit powder once more, pack over the head, no no race band. So pack over the head, get up. Because we're all roped, we're up together, two of us. Ray would just kind of do and stop. You know, he'd just do one turn and stop as I face planted. And then I would crawl up again and fucking start to shit again. It was exhausting. Wow. And so that was the yeah, first so ascent tiring. of that route. Of that route. Yeah, it's never been repeated. Never been repeated. No, no. Wow. Well, there's enough other routes to do first ascents of them. Yeah. And, you know, it's difficult to get to. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons. And so when you're when you're on this route, it's a 10,000-foot face. Mm. What are your route-finding techniques? Like, how are you navigating yourself up 10,000 feet? Like, you could you – could, pick the wrong direction and go up 3000 feet and then realize that you're screwed and you have to backtrack. Like what is your, your mindset on terms well, of I'm choosing? Sure, I'm, sure that, I'm sure we had a photograph. Okay. And, but still, I mean, a photograph looking at a mountain from yeah, a, you no, know, miles tra- away yeah. is way different when you're yeah. on it. Yeah. I mean, for example, this final gully, you know, from the, from the, when we were freezing up the final gully, we did not know that where that led to. We didn't know. We knew that it probably started to get easier because we'd gone through the rock band and, and it would get easier, but we didn't know where it led. The fact that it led out onto this flat glacial system, you know, the upper part of the mountain, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, because Logan's like a big loaf of bread. Steep on the sides, but once you get to the top, it's fairly easy. Mm-hmm. So you you're know. saying a lot of it was luck? Um well, we just, you know, we kept picking the line. The kept easiest picking route? Picking the easiest line, the easiest which was directly in front of us. Yeah. I mean, the natural line. I mean, we weren't trying to pick the steepest, most dangerous fucking place. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, 
it looked like there's a breakthrough there. And, you know, we didn't want to climb under Seracs. Although somebody, you know, we did this, had this flyby thing going. I don't remember seeing it or hearing it or anything. But um, he said the place that looked like the size, well, the top of the Serac, steep ice bit pitch, um, that we camped on and spent the rest of there like a basketball pitch. The pilot said it fell off. And I think it said it fell off while we were on the route. Oh. So, you know, thank goodness it fall off two days earlier. Wow. Or whatever, you know. Wow. You know, sometimes yeah, it's good to be crazy. lucky. I mean, I can't I can't authenticate that, but I remember him saying it fall. I didn't know if it all fell off mm-hmm. or maybe the face of it fell off. Mm-hmm. I doubt if all the whole thing fell off. I'd say either way it would have been catastrophic. Oh, it would, well, if we if we were camped at the back of it and the face fell off, mm-hmm. it would have been, I'm sure it wouldn't have gone yeah. back there. But. You know, we've heard these stories of, of the super alpine like you've talked about. And, you know, we've heard the, the details of the story themselves. Um, now we'd like to kind of dive into, you know, things that you might have pulled from these um these adventures and like more nitty gritty details on logistics and, and kind of your mindset in these, in these adventures. So um, yeah, Max, take it away. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think starting with that is a good question about just funding in general and maybe what a cost differential would be from, you know, a trip obviously nowadays where you have an inexperienced person who maybe gets guided on a large trip, Denali or something could be tens of thousands of dollars. So I'm kind of just wondering what were you doing to fund these trips and maybe what was kind of an average cost? What could you afford at, at these times? Well, initially, when we were climbing in the Alps, which would have been from 68 to 75, normal an Alpine season would be three months. And it may start off in the limestone eastern Alps of the Dolomites, and then come into Chamonix, well, come into the north faces in the Swiss Alps in June, which that's when the best the ice climbs came into condition, uh, and then end up in Chamonix around July, August. Yeah, so by that time you were fit. Three months, how did you fund it? Well, you know, we worked, I mean, we were school teachers, so I, you know, so we saved up. But there's a lot of we worked at odd jobs. I I gave up my job as a teach as basically a mountain instructor um, in a mountain school in Wales because Adrian was climbing in the Alps that summer and winter, and I would only had six weeks holiday, and it was like, oh shit, I only need six weeks. I need three months for the Alps. You need three months, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah. I would supply teach, you know, so I would just come back and try and find teaching jobs. But there's also um, people starting rope access jobs, which I would do. Um, you know, the, the main, I mean, my parents were still alive. You know, the big, the big take which I look back now is I was homeless. I was a bloody homeless person. <laughs> I guess you would call it a, climb, a dirt bag climber, but I didn't have a van yeah. and, you know, some income or parents who were wealthy or anything. You know, I, we went out and worked and saved. 
And, you know, there was nefarious goings on to, you know, breaking into Alpine to make things cheap and money go a long way. But, you know, going into Alpine huts. But those are all just lies. But those are just lies, yeah. (laughs) Those are exaggerations. They used to call it five-finger discount, but... I, that's probably not a good idea for any younger people watching, listening to this. So, you know, so we were, we had part-time jobs, okay. but, you know, um, supply teaching wasn't that bad. You got paid by the day and um, you didn't have a contract. So, you know, but you got the worst classes. So if you were prepared to take, you know, the hooligans from the 15-year-old hooligans from the inner cities whose normal teacher was having a nervous breakdown and was taking time off as sick, and you took those classes, then you were fine. I think what I I read is, and this is a little bit of a caveat, but um, what I read is that you, you, I think you and Adrian together, correct me if I'm wrong here, took these kids out climbing and and created uh, programs uh, for access uh, to these inner kids who had troubles and, and kind of rougher lives. And I think you even said that, uh, you know, a, a child that had come out who was one of the more troubled children in the class came out and reached out to you, like, what, decades later? No, no just like last year. Last year. Yeah. And, and said that you changed his life and that he'd been climbing and you really, like, had such a huge, huge impact on, on his life. And I think that's, like, that's super cool that you you had the uh, – um, the foresight and, and you know, a, a way to give these kids an outlet, which they, they absolutely so so needed. And, you know, my brother, he had one kid, because he worked doing the same thing with rough kids, just up the road in another school, just outside of Chester, Cheshire, England. And he, this kid was obviously, I think he was on probation for stealing a motor scooter, Right. Adrian took him under his wing, groomed him as a climbing assistant. He became his his right-hand man on these trips out that he did with the kids. Adrian was living in Colorado in, I think, the 90s. This kid tracked him back via the Alpine, British Alpine Club and stuff like this, found his address and sent him a thank you card telling him. And this this kid at the age of 16 became um, soldier of the year in Britain at the age of 16. And obviously went on to a career, and I don't know what he did after he, you know, but he joined the army because he had certain outdoor skills, which for a poor kid like that, you know, um, was good. And, and obviously highly motivated. The couple of guys who got back to me last year, one of them's living in Saskatchewan and running a business there. The other one is back in England. I forgot what he's doing. He's doing very well. And I remember what I told them. I remember saying, don't think of just England. Get a skill. Become a welder. Get some form of skill, trade skill, and go out to Saudi Arabia for six months, earn money, do do it that way. And those kids, they could read, but, you know, not a lot. I mean, they were in the lowest classes, 
with some, and they were the good guys in a th- class of thugs. There were some thugs in that class who probably are in jail right now, you know. Um, these were two. And now I bet they're both worth a million. The way they talked to me and, and so on. And the way that when they emailed me, the, the, the way that the text and they the emailed, you know, they've continued growing and learning. And that that was fantastic, mm-hmm. you know. It was cool, cool. And so, yeah, that was um, supply teaching jobs. I mean, I taught all kinds of stuff. I mean, I taught physics when I had a 750 Norton motorcycle and I took it into the classroom <laughs> to explain how the four-cylinder engine worked. It was all boys. Yeah. You know, they loved it. Vroom! In the, in the classroom. <laughs> But yeah. but you know it was it was a tough school and teachers were tough. I remember my brother being called out by the deputy head principal on the last day. He had to go and see some kid at the end of school, and this kid had been threatening to knife the deputy head principal. And he said, "Mr. Burgess, could you just come and just stand a little distance away?" <laughs> and Adrian went over and stood there, and the kids looking and saying. Burgess is over there. Yeah, I know why he's there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it, so you're, you're in terms of the funding. You basically were working for part of the year, and then the other part of the year was completely dedicated. That to was Al, that was Alpine up to about 1974, 75. Yeah, after Which is that, where, where our stories kind of stopped. Yes. Well, yeah. After that, I moved to Canada. And, you know, that was when I went to Canada in 78, I think, I'm not sure if it was then or uh, any of the Canadian dollars were 10% more than the American dollar. When we went down to South America, so I'm working in construction in Canmore, building a motel, I'm taking Canadian dollars, changing changing them for 10% up of the American dollar. Mm. I think when I came back, it was down Ten percent. So you made even more. No, no, no. Oh, it was it was, it was kind of worse. Gotcha, you know? gotcha. You know? Unless I change them all. Yeah, the yeah I was going to say it's not like that anymore. <laughs> but the point is, we the, the idea that after that for the was to work in construction hard for three or four months, dirt bag, and um, go climbing and raise money for expeditions and the whole expedition thing started really once we started going to the Himalaya. Okay. That that started with Dalagiri and stuff like that, where before that, we were working in, hard in construction, saving and um, climbing for, you know, three to four, five, six months, you know. So, I mean, I don't, I, realistic, well, now, you know, people say, oh, you can't do that now. Well, you can. You can, you can. You know, you don't need a $60,000 sprinter, you know. <laughs> it's nice, but yeah. if you don't have one, you can, you know, you could probably buy a half-ton truck, Toyota, put a back on it yourself, not like built out of wood and aluminum, mm-hmm. and providing you don't roll the thing, it'll probably be okay. <laughs> and, you know, and work hard, live in your truck, don't rent. Camp near the construction site, working construction. No one's going to bother, you know. Near the construction site, no one's going to say, "Hey, 
who's that guy in the truck? You know? He's the guy who shows up to work on he's time a, every he day. He shows up, he's never done. <laughs> <laughs> right? Always early don't, on the don't job. Don't eat in restaurants. <laughs> drink in, only drink at week, beer at weekends. That's what we did. Save your money. Go climbing. Once, once you get sponsored a little, money's hard to come by. But gear ain't bad. Mm-hmm. When you start going to the outdoor retailer shows and stuff, if you've got a resume of some form, you'll probably be able to get gear at least on uh, pro deals. That's not difficult, you know. So outside of funding, what yeah. other sacrifices did you make with family, love life, and overall um, just kind of like that area of life that a lot of people tend to gravitate well, I towards? Think, I think, you know, the relationship thing, is definitely that most people would have to deal with, definitely. Because, um, I mean, the South America trip that went from Patagonia up through Bolivia to Peru and back, my girlfriend was with me. Adrian's girlfriend, who was from French and was becoming a French teacher uh, eventually, no, an English teacher in France, um, left him at base camp. You know, just... While yeah. he was on the mountain. While right? he was on the mountain. Oh, my God. Like, you know, she'd had enough of it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, so one, take your girlfriends with you or climb with them or whatever, you know, but they were not. Or, or be single. Or be single. or Yeah, or be single yeah. and accept that, you know. I mean, yeah, it's all, it all boils down to uh, um, priorities. Like, what is the priority? And yeah, climbing. If climbing is the ultimate priority, then there are sacrifices to be made. I I would say if you're a driven climber, providing you're not looking for a long term relationship, girls are never a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> not for Al. <laughs> And I say that humbly. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, how could you tell on your adventures when enough was enough? Um, because obviously you're teetering on such a fine line. When, when, do, you, when do you know when to, to kind of um, pull back, you know? Have you, have you had experiences yeah, oh, where you've had definitely. to on um, You know that, um, well, I mean... You know, we had, I think we retreated three times off of Fitzroy before, you know, we climbed it. You know, we weren't going to just freeze it. You know, anybody who says you get hit by a storm 500 from the top feet from the top of Fitzroy, well, we'll sit here till the weather clears. <laughs> You're going to die. <laughs> Two weeks <laughs> later, a frozen corpse. Yeah. There's no way. You're lucky if you yeah. can get down. Um, Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, we turned around, you know, when Brian Hall said, you know, if you guys keep doing this, we went up to try this route called Tayarahu, which was these big buttresses. Again, same kind of height, 19,000 or something like that. And as we're walking across the glacier towards the foot of one of this thing, a big avalanche came down straight between the two peaks, Jeez. Right. Ed and I just looked at one another and went, you know what? Yeah, back. We'll go back. 
It's something's not right. You've got you develop a kind of sixth sense on stuff, and you've got to listen to it. Um, a friend of mine, very good climber, one of the Paul Braithwaite, brilliant alpinist, high altitude climber, and so on. Um, he used to say, "If you just do this at weekends, maybe you can get away with it. But if you do this all the time." You have to kind of listen. If something don't feel right, it's probably because it probably isn't. I mean, I tell a story. This is more recent. This is like only in year 2000. So this is way later. But I'm climbing with this guy in the Dolomites. And we're doing this climb. You know, it's a grade six. It's probably 15, 1700 foot high limestone wall, you know, trad with the odd pitons here or there. And I'm up about third pitch up. It's just come daylight. And it's only, it's only about 6.30 in the morning. And I look over the Italian plains and I can see this shimmering, just a shimmering of heat. And also the shimmering is moisture starting. And I went, I think there's going to be a huge thunderstorm today. It doesn't look good to me. We should get down. We should go down. He's like, no, we can race it. Nah. I don't, you know, you don't race things in the Dolomites because you end up on the top of things with electricity hitting all around you. So we wrapped off and he didn't want to wrap off. 12 noon, the big, thun massive thunderstorm, inches of water running down the, where, the road below the, the refugio hut we're at. Wow. But that yeah. cleared the air. Next morning, we went up it and choop, we're up. We're on the top at about three in the afternoon, two in the afternoon. I turned to him. I said, where would we have been at 12 noon when that storm hit? Oh, we would have been off. Bullshit. Cognitive dissidents. <laughs> We'd have been nearing the top of the bloody peak in lightning storms. Yeah. You've got, to, you've got to know, I sensed the weather was going to change. Mm -hmm. the, the storm cleared it. Next morning, nothing like the thunderstorm for clearing the air for the next day. Mm -hmm. That's when you want to be going. Right after the thunderstorm. Right after the big, th massive thunderstorm. Mm -hmm. the, the, it'll clear because it cools the air down. So what was that like? You had a partner that disagreed with you. What was that like in terms of forcing the descent upon him? Yeah, well, he, you know, it was, I think it was about ego for him. Yeah, which will kill you. Which will kill you. Um, you know, I was way more experienced than he was. Okay. And even a stronger rock climber. So in the end, he just trusted you? No, it, basically, I'm not going up. Oh, okay, so you're, I'm going down, you <laughs> well, can come with we're me. We're going down, I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. We're going down. You know, I mean, and he just said that we made the wrong decision because, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, we wouldn't accept it. I mean, that was the, the crazy that he didn't accept stupidity. It the next he wouldn't accept it the next day. Yeah. 12 noon, the storm hit. Massive. I mean, still... I'm talking a cloudburst of rain and lightning. Jeez. And, and where would be? He said, we would have been up. Well, we weren't up until two o'clock in the afternoon the next, next day. bloody day. And you had already done the first part of the And pitch. we'd done the first three pictures. Yeah. Wow. wow. So, you know, stuff like that will, that stupidity will kill you. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you can't accept, What's going on around you? You know, you have to.
And so I think this actually is a perfect caveat to my next question is, and maybe this is the answer. Um, how, how have you avoided major injury and death all these years? Because, you know, in these stories, you know, your, your climbing friends and the professionals in your, in your career have died and you've seen, you know, friends and, and other athletes die in the same field that you're in. Why do you feel that you have been spared in a way? Like, how have you cheated injury? How have you cheated death? Like what? Well, what a little, obviously a bit of luck in the place, some places. Do you where, feel like there's a way to maximize luck? Um, experience. Because, you know, with experience, you make better decisions on weather, route finding, danger. When is something dangerous, right? You know, if it is dangerous, how dangerous? You know, I mean... Taking a flyer um, on a Dolomite peak with bolt anchors all the way up and cracking an ankle is, or, or getting hit on the head, because, you know, you're probably cracking ankles, not really. I mean, because it's probably steep enough, you're not going to do that, you know. But suppose it getting some injury, you could pull your bloody shoulder muscle out, pull in an overhand, something. Mm-hmm. That's not a big danger because you can wrap off. There's fucking fixed anchors, mm-hmm. right? It's not it's not Patagonian winds howling across it, you know, when trying to tie your ropes up. So I think just judging accurately where you're at. And once you're committed, like, you know, on Waskara Norte, on Logan, you've got to say, you've got to be honest with everything. Uh, you've got to... Honest with your team, you've got to share your team, share the strengths of the team. Not ego doesn't work like that. You've got to say, I'm tired now. I need you to come through and help me. Otherwise, you, if I keep doing this all the way up, and some people might have you do that, but you're going to have a cripple, a knackered, injured, you know, cripple on your hands, you know, high up on a mountain. And you know when what people do then? We'll leave you here and go for health. That's the usual <laughs> solution. <laughs> Not good. Not good. Not good. I think I think you have to be honest yeah. with yourself. You know how you are, like how you like how you are um, at the time. You know you have good days and off days. Mm-hmm. And if I mean I've turned back from climbs in the Alps. You know where nothing happened, where probably if we'd have gone forward, the weather didn't break, you know, but there's certain places, you know, choose the choice of route, for example, that, and that's experience. And we never had that experience initially in the Alps, but by about 1972, we started to get it. And it was, you know what, even with m- mediocre weather forecasting, you had some of the forecasting, but it was mediocre. If it said, if it looked like it was there was going to be a storm tomorrow, but there being a the past week had just been afternoon thunderstorms, we'll do an ice route where you start at midnight and you're down off the mountain by twelve noon. Mm. Flexibility, flexibility, objective. objective. Don't get too tied into that two day route that I've got to do. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, we've come down off the north face of the Eiger. I've never climbed it. 
we came down because I could see a storm building up up in the, the upper section of that face, and we would have been hit by it. Now, whether or not it would have gone, you know, but what it, it, it may have just been an afternoon storm that next day was clear, but on a face like that, that's going to bring stonefall like crazy on a face that's known for stonefall. Mm -hmm. So don't do it. You know, so it's picking the roots. Don't get me too tied in. I mean, have your objective. Have a bunch of objectives and then fit them to the weather. That's what I would do in the Western Alps, you know. Well, anywhere, you know, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd do that in Colorado, you know, on Long's Peak. Mm -hmm. If I, you know, I would go up on the Long... It's known for its thunderstorm activity. Mm -hmm. I would figure out the time of year, maybe... In middle of September, when the storms of I don't know because I don't I'm not experiencing that area, but I would find out when the best time periods are. Mm. Yeah. So, so I think that's sure. experience. Look helps. Fitness and speed is safety. But um, I think I think another turning back is not a problem. Yeah, yeah. You got to be okay with turning back. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you have to be. And I think I think one of the things that that play a role a lot in in safety is fear. I think if fear creeps in, it it, it uh, we've talked about this in other podcasts. It, it clouds judgment. It lowers performance. You know, I think a lot of people deal deal with fear in different ways. In in the book and in these these parables, it seems like you are this fearless climber. And you're able to be in the flow state and you're able to be in this mentality most of the time. Is that an accurate representation of your experience or what, what is your relationship with fear and, and how I did would, you I would deal say, with it? I would say sometimes that was true that, you know, I was quite fearless mm -hmm. and that those were the times that I could, could go up and say, this mountain cannot kill me. So, yeah, I mean, it's like these stories of these sketchy belays, and these these just very exposed situations, I think people like Max and I, the majority, are going to be just gripped with fear and just with the sheer uh, paper thin um, paper thin amount of, of threshold of risk that you're dealing with between complete failure and death and and success. I think that. How do you stay comfortable in a situation like that where the stakes are so high, there is no margin for error, you're soloing half the time? Like, what are the, the secrets to yeah, staying? Build your, building and, your experience. Building the experience. Building your experience. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be comfortable with um, the terrain you're on. If it's what we would consider relatively easy terrain just know you're not going to fall don't don't just climb three-point contact you know don't you know and don't climb under big ice seracs and if you do go very very quickly don't don't camp under them <laughs> that's probably the worst <laughs> thing camping under a big serac or a stone shoot is probably shows you shouldn't be anywhere near that mountain yeah no, build your build on your experience. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. So it's building on it. Don't go in over. Don't your go head. in over your head. You know that this is one of the 
things about gym climbing that um, always con concerns me. You could have somebody who's climbing 513, 514 in the gym. They have so much strength to, to climb into difficulty, to climb into danger on a trad situation or alpine situation that they will suddenly be out of bloody control. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 514 climber, you know, his skull bursts open just as easy as anybody else, you know, when you land or swing in, you know. Yeah. In. So, so you've got to know at what level, you know, gym climbing, sport climbing, build on it. Adventure sport, you know, on somewhere in the European Alps where bolted anchors and the odd bolt, but you carry a light rack. That'll improve your route finding. But don't bloody assume you're going to climb at the same grade. If you're climbing 5, 12 plus in the gym or, or on single pitch, you know, why don't you just drop it to 510 to start with and see how that goes? 59 even. And because you could be on a on 59 terrain even 510 terrain and you step 6 foot to the right and you're on 515 terrain mm -hmm. you know the route finding yeah. is critical mm -hmm. and that's experience mm -hmm. it is really experience you can't really teach that you can't to, you've got to just build it mm -hmm. and and if you stop doing it you will you'll maintain a bit of it but you need to be that's why you know if you're climbing on granite all the time, you suddenly climb on dolomite limestone. I was about to say that. Yeah. You need to you need to start off and work up to it because it's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the terrain you're on, the rock quality, the rock yeah. type, it all different because the holds are going to be different. Yeah. The way the rock interacts with you is going to yes. be different. Yeah, and the way it protects. The way it protects is different. Is different. Yeah. Yeah, and the and particularly the root finding, you know. Yeah. Yeah, build on the experience. And then it can, you know, there are, there are very few really hard rock climbers who have, been, who have been very hard rock climbers who became very good high altitude mountaineers. I'm considered, I'm not one of those very good because I was never a very good rock climber. But you take someone like Dave Brashears, right, who... Does you know he was like in the eighties was climbing five twelve trad, wow. right, and ended up you know spent last time I saw him he just spent I don't know forty days over twenty thousand feet you know making because he's now a film maker mm. but he's also was apparently a very strong high altitude climber I've never climbed with him but that's what the Sherpas told me. It's quite rare for that ability to translate. To translate. I mean, Reinhold Mesner's one. He was a very good rock climber. Um, I mean, became a very good high altitude climber. It tends to become quite specialised. I think myself and my brother, we well, Adrian, Adrian was a better rock climber for a period because you know he was going to the climbing gym. I was guiding treks in Nepal. Um, and his big deal was at the age of, and this was true, at the age of 50, he went to Pakistan, not with me, with another guy, and climbed, I think it was like over 25,000 foot peak, 
alpine style on a face. It wasn't a first ascent, it was a second, I think. Alpine style came back and within a month on-sighted a 12-sport climb. They probably lost so much bloody weight in Pakistan <laughs> that, you know, he came back and did a few pull-ups, <laughs> finger hang boards, and he was ready to go, you know. Yeah. But that but that is that's kind of a hard thing. You know, I mean, you know, you take Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold's actually building his on his experience. Um, good rock climber, went to Patagonia has actually been to the Dolomites. Mm -hmm. I don't know what he's done in the Dolomites and stuff. I don't think he's climbed ice yet. I don't know if he has an interest in climbing ice. Um, the one climber, what, gosh, what was his name? The, who's the Swiss machine? What was his oh, name? Oh, Uli Steck. Uli Steck. Uli Steck. Uli Steck was another one who was very good rock climber. I think he was a very good rock climber. But then, but yeah, then became like obviously a very a brilliant alpinist, alpinist yeah. soloing super fast, mm -hmm. and then went to altitude. Who was obviously good at altitude, but it didn't last long enough at altitude. Yeah, I don't know what went wrong. It there. was either rockfall or an avalanche during a solo. Ro it was soloing. He got something happened. Something hit him. Yeah. Something hit him. Probably. Yeah. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So with, you know, so many years of experience and spending so much time in the mountains, obviously tragedy and trauma and injury, these are all things that are kind of, I guess, synonymous with mountain climbing. If you spend enough time in the community, you know, both Kyle and myself have injured ourselves. Um, I'm wondering what your experience is with that, whether that's like lost friends or climbing partners or sustaining injury yourself. Maybe if you could speak a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, not, not, actually not much personal injury. I mean... You know, I I was heel hooking in the Dolomites and tore some meniscus. You know, I had to get my knee fixed or whatever. Just you know, apparently I don't have an ACL on that one, but it, but it goes into half lotus really easily. <laughs> <laughs> um, no big injuries. Obviously, people who are dead. Yeah, yeah. Could you? I mean, a lot of them. Like, yeah, it's like tens, twenties. Like oh shit. Um, you know, I tend not to try and remember. Yeah. And, you know, there's a whole, the Sherpa has told me you never mention the dead person's name because mm. it holds them back. Oh, wow. Do you know that Sherpas are given a name in, and by the Lama when they're born and it's carried in a little package here and then the name they have isn't their true name? Because their true name is only whispered by the Lama at the point of death to help them move, pass on. Pass on. Wow. So you never say a person's wow. name because it holds them back. Wow. You know. So I mean, I I'm not exactly holding to that, but yeah. I tend. That's why I forget names. Mm -hmm. I honestly. Yeah, I mean, this is like pretty synonymous. But a with, lot. I mean, let's like, say 50, 50 yeah. 40. And I think yeah. that's pretty synonymous with like when uh, wing uh, wingsuiting and base jumping, it just gets to a point where it's just, there's too many fatalities and too many tragedies to, to put so much effort on or, or focus on, on yeah. to, to the deaths and, and to, it's just kind of becomes part of the sport. But uh, I do think it is important for, for the climbing majority and people like us to, to just recognize how dangerous these yeah. environments are and, 
and how much you are putting on the line. And, you know, you have to answer that question. One, is it worth it? Is it worth your life? And two, like you said, like, are you coming into objective with uh, an overwhelming understanding that you're going to survive this climb? Or are you going into it with like the expectation that you might die? And I think that these questions need to be addressed and the reality of, of the heaviness and the and the severity of, of these kind of objectives are, are, can be overlooked and I think need to be at least addressed in a certain way. Yeah, you have to, you got to know, you know, what is the risk. That was when we talk, spoke before, I said, so which is the most difficult of this to achieve? Climbing a red point in a 514 or climbing an 8,000 metre peak in the Himalaya without oxygen in winter? Well, it, it's, it, it depends. You know, it depends on um, how big is your team, 8,000 metres in winter, you know. If it's a huge team, well, that it depends. Is everyone else using oxygen? Do you aren't? Uh, you know, is Sherpas fixing a line to the summit for you? I mean, I would never count that as climbing. That's being guided, right? But, you know, if you're climbing like we climbed Dalagiri to climb Dalagiri in winter, which is more difficult? That or Red Point in a 514? And, and I sat down... Again, I've forgotten his name, but he's a well-known, very good rock climber. Round, it was an Indian creek, and we were both drinking beers around a campfire. And I said, you know, you, if you're going to train to do a red point of a 514, you can do it out of a van with your girlfriend, your wife. You can do it from home with a kind of job and just go to the gym in the morning and the evening. You can go running and training. It will not affect your everyday life in some ways in a negative way if you don't want it to. You could go on the road in a van and just train like crazy, right? It's still going to be very physical, but it's not really dangerous. And I don't think it's as emotionally taxing. 8,000 meter peak in winter. You're not going to fucking climb an 8,000-meter peak in winter without oxygen, without being at altitude a little while for some times. It's not going to be the first time you've been there. That's going to take a lot of time out of your personal life, relationships, jobs, careers, homeless, <laughs> right? And then once you get there to do it, because you've got all that together, you can raise the money. You've raised the money. You had somebody else raise the money. And this team comes together. The winter winds high up can shut you down so easily, so easily. And without oxygen, I mean, you know, even with the best gear that's around nowadays, which is way better than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, that... I would say the personal commitment to that, the time it's going to take away from, you know, raising the money, you know, can you keep a marriage together, even a girlfriend doing that? Because you're going to have to go at least one 8,000 meter peak a year at altitude. I mean, I don't know how the hell you're going to do it to gain that experience to do it safely. And then, you know, you've got to get the fitness level. 
the hours, you know, you can put in an hour on a hangboard every day. You're going to have to put in hours and hours, like Uli State did on Mesner, running hills. And, you know, I mean, so that's my perspective that it's harder to do that. But for me, it might be harder. It may have been harder to do a 514 because I'm not a 514 rock climber. Mm -hmm. So it depends. For a 514 rock climber, climbing 8,000 peaks in winter is definitely going to be harder. Like for Alex Honnold, that is going to be harder for sure, mm -hmm. right? But for me to actually do a non-dangerous and do a 514, well, at my age, I'm probably going to tear tendons. So it's going to, you know, it's going to be injuries and all kinds of shit going on, right? But even if I was, you know, 30 years old, you know, or 35 years old. So I think that's where you get into what the sport is. They're almost different sports. Yeah. Absolutely. And and the actually the Himalayan stuff where you're coming down the same way and you might have some fixed look rope on technical sections makes it kind of a bit safer than some of this super alpine stuff you do mm -hmm. when you're shit out to look, man. If a big storm comes in on Logan, you know, on if it have when we got that minus snow to snow powder, if a really big storm came in for days, we'd have been gone. We'd have been swept off. Sometimes it's good to be lucky. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a, an awesome place to kind of like leave a little bit of a cliffhanger for uh, this next part two that we're going to go into with Al uh, and dive more into his, his uh, life in 8,000 meter peaks and the, the full kind of expansion and, and focus of, of his life uh, moving forward after all these stories that we've talked about. Um, Max, like, do you have anything else would you like to cover before we kind of leave everybody here on this little cliffhanger? No, I think the cliffhanger is a great idea and I'm, I'm super excited personally. I really, really am into, and I followed a lot of high altitude climbing for a lot of years. So I'm really, really fascinated to do a, a deep dive with you, Al, into kind of that process and what living like that was like and everything. So yeah, I think the cliffhanger is a great idea. Sweet. Awesome. Well, you know, you know, sometimes, you know, most of the time we close these episodes, uh, you know, with a, a farewell and a goodbye, but it's clearly not the case this time. So I'll, um, I'll close it with a, a cheers and a sip from the oil. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Thanks Dual so much Al, for, well. for coming on the show. It's been um, just, uh, I mean, just the, the, yeah, cheers, cheers. The, the visuals and the storytelling and just the, the awe that I'm, I'm sitting in right now is just um, remarkable and I'm happy to have you here. And I think, you know, our, our audience and myself have been blessed to, to hear your stories and I can't wait to hear uh, a part two. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a blast meeting you and, uh, and hearing and learning from you and uh, definitely excited to, to do a deeper dive into the, the, the higher altitude side of things next time we speak. Awesome. Cool. Well, until next time, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, like I said, Part two with Al Burgess, high alpine, 8,000 meter peaks. Stay tuned.
Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to see actual pictures from the climbs talked about in this episode, follow us on Instagram at the.climbing.majority. Also, I urge you to purchase Alan's book, The Burgess Book of Lies, as this episode and the one coming next barely scratch the surface of his remarkable life and his climbing achievements. A link to find his book can be found in the episode description. See you in two weeks.